What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell with ArtofMagic.com and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Thanks so much for supporting the show and I hope you enjoy it. This episode features Paul Wilson, one of my all-time favorite people. He is an incredible magician, author, con artist, sleight of hand expert, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with some of his amazing work. This episode is really special to me. We recorded this on the day that Jim Patton died, and Paul talks about the amazing and enormous influence that Jim had on his life and the way that he approaches the younger generation now. It's really special and it's really touching. And it really says a lot about the character of Paul, I think. He's just one of the sweetest, most encouraging men I've ever known, I've ever met, and I've ever had the pleasure of befriending. We talk about the respect between the generations in magic. We talk about some of Paul's heroes. We talk about filmmaking and how he considers himself a filmmaker. We talk a little bit about the film that he's working on now in his previous films. We talk about the pros and cons of the internet. And at the end is one of my all-time favorite stories about Dave Buck. So you're definitely going to want to listen in to the end because that story is great. It is a long episode, but it's totally fruitful, and I absolutely cannot tell you how much I love this one. A recurring theme in this episode is that you have to have a viewpoint. You have to have something to say, and Paul talks about that in Magic, and he also talks about it in Filmmaking, and some of the comparisons that he makes are really interesting. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I have no doubt in my mind that you will. Like I said, it's one of my favorites. If you haven't already, sign up for the newsletter at artofmagic.com and follow us on all the social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at A Sense of Mystery, and also on Instagram at Treasury of Wonder. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can email me in at podcast at Art of Magic with little tidbits of why you enjoyed it and maybe provide some criticisms or some suggestions that you may have. I also want to mention the awesome theme song that we're using now. Daniel Prado composed this. He arranged it, he recorded it, he did pretty much everything, and I'm so proud of it, and I'm really happy that we have it. I'm indebted to him for doing it for us. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Have fun. I'll talk to you later. Get all cozy. He's going to bother us throughout yeah, the recording. Come on. Come out. Come on. Her master's Good boy. Yep. Sure. Cool beans. Cool beans. <laughs> cool beans. All right, Eric. You've got me in the bedroom all alone. What are we going to talk about? All the secrets of the world. What have you been up to? It's been so long. Are we recording? Yes, we are. Ah, you see, you didn't say that. I could have said anything. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what have I... <laughs> That's the point. So all of that with Hilton and the little dog. I mean, there was a dog here. We mm-hmm. want to be very clear about that, that we were talking about a little dog. <laughs> Do we need to be that clear? No. We'll we'll leave it to the imagination. Yeah, so uh, where were we? And I also said something about being alone in a bedroom with you, which probably shouldn't go out. That will definitely go out. (laughs) (laughs) It's that kind of thing. Super fun and chill. um, Where have I been up to? Lots of things. Um, Magic-wise? I don't care. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure I care. Um, Well, everything's magic. I think... um, Yeah. I love... uh, you know, there's a, there's a great saying about magic is, is, is good cake and bad bread. You know, where it's, it's a good thing to have as a treat, but if you have to earn your living and, you know, day to day. So I, I kind of um, try and use it as a, 
as a sort of hinge for everything. So I, you know, I get to do shows whenever I feel like it. I don't mm-hmm. pursue that kind of thing very often, but uh, and, you know, it means that it's more fun, and you're always thinking about new stuff or looking for old stuff and trying to play with it and change things. So most of the most of the last couple of years has been playing, filling out my repertoire with stuff that I like and I'm kind of doing, you know, there's a point when you're doing magic for people and you're, they're saying, somebody says, you know, I'm going to give you money to come and do a show, so you just, all you care about is getting reactions and so you, you know, you sort of, you know, you want to fulfill the job as, aspect of it, whereas yeah. I'm at the stage now where I kind of do it as much for myself as what, you know, you want the audience to have fun. So. I'm at that stage where you can kind of explore everything and find what you like. And so for the last, magically for the last couple of years, it's been more about enhancing the stuff I've been doing for years or finding really old stuff that I want to revive or, you know, exploring things that nobody else is doing. And, you know, so I, I yes, I, I do classic effects, but at the same time I'm doing stuff I think no one else is doing. So that's kind of the magic aspect of it and, and coming up with new ideas but not as many as I used to. I think when I was in my 20s, I came up with lots and lots of ideas. And, and now, if something occurs to me, I'll spend a lot of time playing with it and, and then wondering what to do with it. It will go on the show or it will maybe go on a little book or a download or something to share it because that's a, that's something I like to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's a funny question, though. I'll be honest, it's a funny question. What are you doing in magic? Because it's always there, right? Yeah. It's always there. It's just something I'm always doing. It's like, what are you doing with eating? Yeah. Well, that's a question that you asked. I just said, what have you been up to? Right. Uh, yeah, but I, I wanted to define it because it's it's like, you know, is this a magic podcast? I don't know. No. I haven't heard any. It's kind of a magic podcast. We'll certainly talk about it's it. It's really just like, a podcast. Don't it's really just two guys talking. We're I, just a couple of fellas talking. Just a couple of fellas talking in a bedroom. <laughs> Maybe later we're not a couple of fellas doing something else. (laughs) Yeah, why not? I mean, you know, it's Hollywood. Anything can happen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I kind of define magic a little bit separately. It's always been always there, which is great. And so I always find myself thinking about it more and more in, in different terms. And I think with the film that we did a few years ago, that really made me think about stuff not in a navel gazing, you know, trying to be just, you know, I really want to understand why I really like it and why I think people that I do it for really enjoy it and why I really respect other people doing it. So that's kind of a thing. And it's the, there's always this thing with magic where I'm always thinking, I'm I'm here, I'm here sitting, talking to you. I'm here, you know, doing what I'm doing in my life because I picked up a deck of cards when I was eight years old and that never goes away. And so, obviously, you and I know each other because I know you because of magic. You yes. know, but, we, but we don't talk magic very much. We no. always talk about other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it kind of is a funny thing that it, what are you doing recently? Not very much magic, I think, is the answer to that. And yeah, that's I what that's I wanted to get into. Thing. It's, well, it's not all directed by magic, but it's all dependent on my of love of it. And, yes. and it all came from my love of it. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a really complicated and kind of long, boring, meandering re- reply to a very. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> long and meandering, you got it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm doing a lot of other stuff. I, the our magic kicked off. Um, you know, I was I've been wanting to be a filmmaker since I was a kid. And, yes. Uh, when I was sixteen, 
I said at school I want to make movies, and, I wanted, and there were no movie, film schools in, in Scotland that I could see from my high school, which was in a place called Livingston. And I said I want to be a filmmaker. And the very uh, next day, I was offered counselling, career counselling, not like you know, <laughs> this young man wants to be a filmmaker. But, that was it. That, but that's exactly what it was. It's like we need to get this guy's head straight. Yeah, you know? yeah. And. Um, I went off and did other things. You know, I was in the army. I was uh, went to art school because there was a film course in art school, but it was not like right away. You had to be in film school for a couple. Of years. I couldn't stand art school. <laughs> I couldn't stand it, and I couldn't stick it out. And so I ended up going to um, the army, and then I was a computer programmer, and you know, eventually had a family, and you know, got to a certain point, and said, "Well, I'd really like to go back to doing what I wanted to do." When I was uh, 16 and at that point I was 32 years old and uh, amazingly my wife got it and she understood that because you know I have a library wow. a huge library of magic books but I also have a huge library of film books sure. and not just you know um, you know history books but lots of them and biographies and stuff but also filmmaking books which are now very common there were nowhere near as common even then and uh, so she kind of supported that but the only way to do it was to kind of quit this really successful career as a programmer mm-hmm. and then um, do magic and basically have no money. I mean, you know, we, we were, you know, in a good position to do that. Cause I, but um, then Shade came along and uh, then TV and we did the real hustle and all that stuff for years. Always still wanted to go back and do film. And so there was this point couple of years ago none of this is for a question you've asked but it kind of brings us around I'm happy to listen to anything you want to say but you know I was we stopped doing a real hustle and I kind of wanted to really concentrate on the film thing and was coming over here to try and figure out how I could take it and you know we're here in Hollywood and I've been coming here for a long long time sure love it here um, but this is a real anthill of, of people that want to be in this business and some of them should be in the business and can't Mm-hmm. Some are in business and really shouldn't. There's a lot of that um, in every business. But you know, if you want to join that ant hill, then you know, good luck. And yeah. some people get the luck they deserve. But uh, I decided to go home and make my make a short that I wanted to show people. I make a lot of shorts over my time playing with this stuff. So the magic box was made, and with Alan Hagen, we. Uh, mm-hmm we made that we put it out there and it's been really successful it's a beautiful film thank you and I said okay what's next and we've been making these little films about magic these little YouTube interview things and so I was here in this uh, condo and said to these guys I want to make this film about magic and I want to use this as a spine and they got behind it and we were talking about what we were going to call it and I came into this room that we're sitting in right here where Dave's library was mm-hmm. and the very first book I picked off the shelf was called Our Magic and I walked through and I said this is it this is what I'm going to call it and then we made it and everybody got behind us and then the next stage was well what's next and um, I made a film last year a feature film and uh, for very little money but with amazing talent, so we ended up, you know, great talent behind the camera, great talent in front of the camera, all because the script attracted people. This was con men. This was con men, and uh, we made that. We got amazing help in all levels, including the music and everything. And we we showed that in October last year. Uh, we did a few screenings at cinemas in Glasgow and a couple in, in Edinburgh, and uh, that started to bring people out of the woodwork 
who said, okay, what do you need and what do you want to do next? None of those people are saying, here's all the money you need or sure. anything like that, but yeah. they want to help. And so, so what's happening now, and this is, brings us around to this question, what's happening now is, is that we're about to start raising money for uh, the next film, which is a low-budget feature, but uh, I, I just met in the last couple of months, I met with a, a new DP, my DP for, for Conman right now is in Afghanistan, oh, wow. with the British Army, because uh, he's a territorial, and uh, was called up to, to go out there. And so I met this young guy, Alan McLaughlin, who uh, hit it off right away. We've, you know, we talked about film for hours, you know, met for 20 minutes and then talked for hours. And uh, he read the script and said, you know, I love it, we definitely want to do it. And I said, yeah, you know, I've got to tell you. I looked around, you know, like, uh, as if I was going to tell my best friend I wanted to be Spider-Man or something. You know, when you're <laughs> a kid, yeah, hey, I want to be sp- Yeah. And I said, I, I really want to shoot this on film. And not just because it's a trend, but because it was written with that in mind, with the the idea of painting with light, which is one of my favorite books on cinematography, but this idea of using it as a very important element in the story of the film, it just seems to belong on film, having worked with all the digital formats that I've worked with. Sure. And I was kind of expecting him to go, well, you're out of your mind, you've got no budget. And, got... and he went, absolutely, that's what I'm here to tell you. And so, boom. We it went. all clicked. All clicked. <clears throat> so I decided to come out here and, uh, you know, do some meetings and see what I could raise out here. And he's flying out. He's In fact, he should be here in the next hour or two in town. And uh, and this week we're, we're meeting over at Panavision. We've got um, people interested and it's all starting to take off. So suddenly, you know, even though there's no money yet, we're actually starting to get some momentum. Yeah. All of it starting with magic as an eight-year-old kid. All of, of it, you know, you know, obviously the magic box and then now... Uh, our magic and then con man and now here so you know does that that's it I mean that's yeah that's, that's where we're at. answering I mean, my question know, yeah it's uh it's kind of weird uh, and I say it's weird because I don't really understand how any of this stuff works yeah and um I started noticing all the weird little coincidences, the pieces of kismet. That, synchronicities. That, yeah, the synchronicities. Which, you know, I know some people believe in that stuff in, in a sort of, you know, mystical... Uh, Welcome to the New Age podcast. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't believe in any of that, but I do believe that these things happen anyway. And you can, yes, you can yeah. just notice them. Yes. And there is a thing about, you know, it's meant to be. Well, yeah. all these meant to be things are great, but maybe we'll never find the money and we'll never make the movie. But mm-hmm. um, I, I do take this kind of... this approach to it I look at it and I go you know what if we didn't even if, if the movie didn't get made I've still met Alan uh, I've still you know got this amazing team behind me and we're, we're still pushing for other things it's all there anyway but um, there are these amazing little coincidences and these little things that have happened you know one of the things I didn't know about Alan was when we met and we hit it off and this it got an amazing reel I didn't really dig into the reel because I met him the next day you know and uh, he called me and he said, um, great, I've, I've, I've organized this, this meeting at Panavision with uh, the guy over there. I'm like, really? <laughs> and he says, yeah, yeah, I told him about the script and they're all, you know, wow, fantastic. And then, you know, Alan's film won Sundance last year. Oh, wow. And Berlin last year. So, you know, this guy's, he's, got know, he's really a talented kid. So, uh, you know, you count your blessings and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I just don't really understand how many of it. 
works and how I got here because there's an eight-year-old kid inside of me or a 16-year-old kid who's still thinking, wow, you know, look at where... You're doing it, man. Yeah, but, you know, it's hard. Of course. You always concentrate on the fact that you still don't have this or you still don't have that or, you know, and I I always wonder if, um, you know, if that's the same for everybody, you know, even no matter how far they get, you know, for the... uh, for the Truffauts and the Hitchcocks or for the Tarantinos and the Spielbergs. Sure, know, sure. Are you still thinking, you know, I, what's going on? Why don't I have this yet? Yeah, or yeah. something. So I'm, I'm in that sort of enjoyable stage right now. And, you know, this is still new to me. You know, I've been a director and, and stuff, but this is still new to me. I get on I get on set and everyone's, you know, looking at you and, you know, you go on with a plan and everything. But it's like when you were first doing shows and, you know, that... Uh, do you ever get comfortable? Yeah. You know, I don't, the shows, I don't ever get comfortable. I always feel like, you know, I didn't do as well as maybe everyone thought I did. I mm-hmm. always feel like it wasn't quite that good. And sure. I always feel nervous beforehand. And so, at the moment, it's all fresh and new. And, uh, you know, I am 46 years old. And it still makes no sense when I say those words because it doesn't feel like you're... You're 46 year olds were very old people when I was young. I'm sure that's as true for some people. But I, I consider myself a, a young filmmaker. I consider myself a, you know, a young producer because it's all new to me right now. Sure. And um, that way when I'm talking to younger guys, Alan's like a lot younger than I am, you know, and uh, this is this will veer the conversation off a little bit, right? This this will veer the conversation off, but this is maybe interesting. Yeah, of course. About all this stuff that happens with us, Magicon, uh, Dan and Dave, um, you, right? And yes. Other guys. I think when I was younger, people of my age could never have related to people of your age or younger, right? The way that we can now. Yeah. And maybe a lot of people at my age still can. I don't know. But I think learning how to look up to younger people who have done what they've done is one of the most important developments in in creativity, in artistic endeavours, right? I really, really do. And I think when I realised I was comfortable with that, that, you know, I'd meet a young guy and he'd do something amazing. And you're not threatened by it. Yeah, because you, you, you can be. And, yeah. you know, it'll happen with anything. It'll happen before, even though I say it now, it could happen, you know... But, you know, when you see a, a kid who's, you know, 12 years old doing amazing second deals that I never could do when I was 12 or 22, I, I actually was, you know, wow, this is amazing. Come and see this guy. I'm really proud of myself for that. I can still tell you all the times I wouldn't be proud of myself. When I was like, oh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, it's very good, but you should maybe. And that's me hearing those people when I was a kid sure. who would try and fence you in, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's been really important because that's, where I'm do- what I'm doing now and there's so many younger guys who've done so much more than me and I look up to them really and I was a point where I realised that age was not a factor yeah. that came from the magic community and from the Carter Street community especially Yeah. because that interaction and it all goes back to I've talked about it before that first magic on where there was this really you were at the first magic I was one, not, you not? No. no it was really special yeah you, you yeah you you really missed. I know, I know. You missed something special. It's a real shame, and you should really feel bad about it. I do. You I feel every have day. A very good cry. Yes. <laughs> but the first magic home was special for a very important reason, and I remember when I noticed it. When we got there, you know, first of all, you realize I'm one of the older guys. Right? That was one of the first times I was like, "Oh crap, I'm one of 
poltergeist. Can I swear on this thing? Yeah. And I said, crap. I said, fuck. Yes. I'm not. And I, I was with um, with another friend of mine, and we were like, damn, we were the old guys, right? Yeah. And there's all these kids, and they're all sitting on the floor, and they're all doing um, flourishes. A lot of them are doing yeah. flourishes. Some of them are doing expert card moves brilliantly well at a point that, you know, I would never have imagined, <laughs> right? And you're walking around this, you know, like, you know, in my imagination now, it's like landmines where you're stepping between these kids who are like, doing second deals and bottom deals and amazing flourishes. And, it's, and then, but all the speakers were kind of our generation mostly, mm. right? And it's like, this is going to be a disaster. Seriously. I mean, these, this is going to be a disaster. I mean, I, how am I going to talk to these guys? I was here to talk about, you know, my thing. And Weber got up at the very beginning of the, the thing. And he said, I'm going to tell you something and you, you'll either know it now or you'll know it later and you'll understand it. And it's whoever tells the best story wins. That's what he said. Yeah. And immediately the entire convention without any conscious decision became about story. And all of us who were speaking leaned towards that idea of story. And it became very special. But the thing that really, the moment where I realized something important was happening was when I looked out and all these kids had cards in their hand. They were flourishing. They were dealing into the lap and they were paying full attention and they were absorbing everything mm-hmm. and that's when I realized this is the first time we've all really connected two generations connecting and I think before then the idea of flourishing right you know Dan and Dave will tell you that it, there's a definite snootiness about it right? definitely looking down your nose about it and there's a reason for that not, not a necessarily entirely bad reason but the actual expression of it I thought was very bad I didn't like the fact that you know, people would dismiss people for just doing flourishes because yeah. they could also do magic. It's very the good thing is that yes, flourishes and magic can conflict with one another. That's definitely true. Of course. But they can also exist together in the same space. And there's great footage of, of Scarney doing magic and cheating, right? Mm-hmm. Cheating, by the way, just like flourishing. I'm doing second deals, and now I'm going to do magic. Well, well you can do anything. I saw you do all the second deals. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. So, but he got up, and in the middle of this demonstration, he had it nicely segmented. It was presented so that you saw the the, the skill and the magic separately. But in the middle of it, he said he did some flourishes, old school flourishes of the arm. Sure, sure. He says, here's some things I did in my youth. And I thought, wow, that's how to do it, right? And so this scene in MagicCon really was I thought exciting and that's when I got to meet all these guys that I really think are really interesting right now and um, you know Maddie Gilbert I met Maddie at that for the first time sure which uh, is not only an exciting guy he's also a very dear friend now you know so you it was a really interesting thing and I I do think that you know whatever happens with me in this career I'm trying to pursue right now it's founded in my relationships that I built in this world where mm-hmm. I can you know relate to and learn from anybody I, I do genuinely seek out the old men of magic right I mean I, I'm the old man of anything I'm interested sure. and always have been like that you know if you ever spend a lot of time with your grandparents I did my entire youth was spent amongst my grandparents um, the you, you do do think okay I want to learn as much as I can but when you suddenly realize that there's a two-way street here and the really smart old guys of the past, including Vernon, I think, I mean, I could be wrong, 
the reason they surrounded themselves with these because it was a two-way street, right? Yeah, yeah. And there is definitely a tradition in, in magic, and I think in all things, of being threatened by the up-and-comers, right? That created these barriers, and, you know, you fence people in, and you say, oh, how dare you go and do that when you're only 22? And there was that thing, and I suffered from it. I, I, was, I had people who did that to me, actually. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, it's so exciting to kind of do what you want to do at any age. And just do it anyway. I, I wish I was doing it when I was 24. But I'll be honest, I don't think I would have anything to say when I was 24. Like I think I do now. I think sure. I've got something to say. And that came later in life. And for some people it does. But um, the really cool guys that I looked up to, I looked up to them because they kind of reciprocated that, that respect. And, uh, you know, I was talking about him today, and a lot of guys won't know him. There was a card magician called Rovi, R-O-V-I. Ivor was his original name. Okay. And I remember I saw him do a lecture, and uh, he was very charming, very funny, and completely amazing. I mean, really fooling stuff. And I gravitated to this guy because, um, you know, he could fool you without apparently doing any slights, right? Sure. And as much as I'm big into sleight of hand or cheating and stuff, at an early age, there was a guy called Len Edwards, right? And again, nobody will probably know him unless they came from Edinburgh. But I went to an Edinburgh Magic Circle Open Day, and it was in a golf club, and it was, you know, in a, in a bar, right? And people would uh, sit around. It wasn't just for magicians. It was for their family and for anyone else who wanted to come. Sure. And I went to this thing, and there were two rounds of applause circling the room so guys were doing magic at the tables and it wasn't that great right <laughs> but there were two guys everyone was really reacting to and one of them was Len Edwards who was doing no sleight of hand and he would say that I'm not one of you you look at me and say I'm not one of you whiz kids that's exactly what he said <laughs> I'm not one of you whiz kids and then he basically would proceed to beat me up without doing anything I had no idea what he was doing and I always remember that feeling, and, and Len Edwards was a, a real influence on me. But the other guy that was going around the room was a guy I ended up spending a few years with. It was a guy called Walter Sonny Day. And he was an older guy, and probably 60s at the time, and he looked like um, a caricature of the devil. <laughs> with his beard, and I've got a pointy beard right now, but he, he really had this kind of his chin and his features, and he was quite withdrawn because he... He suffered from anorexia nervosa, okay. and he had been in a terrible car crash. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was another card magician, very well known card magician, in the crash with him who told me a lot about it. I don't want to say his name because I don't know how private that is. But sure. um, they were in this bad car crash coming back from a convention, and mm-hmm. um, as a result, he had ended up suffering from anorexia nervosa. So uh, the only thing he ever ate was madeleines, which are these little uh, French cakes, these little sponge cakes. So when I went to see him, he would bring out tea and madeleines, and it's the only thing I ever saw him eat, ever. Okay. Right. And uh, yesterday, when I was with um, Dave, and we went to Starbucks, I'm, whenever I see madeleines, I always buy them and eat them. And you know, so I had them yesterday. Oh wow! Because I was, because I was thinking of Sunny, and I was talking about him this morning. And I had breakfast this morning with Jim Steinmeier, which still freaks me out. You know, so <laughs> I get to sit and talk. I to get Jim to Steinmeier. sit here and listen to you. Well, talk. you say that, but I'm like, wow, this guy I read everything, and you know, he's, we're just chatting for breakfast. I was telling him about Sunny Day. I'm going to tell you about it. There's no format to this, right? Yeah, tell me. So 
Sonny was going around the room and was just fooling the hell out of everybody. When I saw him, I was blown away. Did amazing stuff. And he did, uh, he did the coins around the room, which was coins to glass. But the only thing he did that was different, well, his method was very good, but the only thing that was really different was instead of the coins going from hand to hand and dropping a glass, they left the left hand and went left around the room and until they arrived and he caught them on his right hand in the glass. So when you think about it, that makes the effect like a hundred times bigger. Yeah. That's huge. Try it. Now, you want to get, if you're a magician thinking, oh my God, I wish Paul would talk about magic. This is all very boring. And you do coins to glass. And instead of saying, look, they go from hand to hand, but they land in the glass. Instead of you say, I'm going to make it leave this hand, go around the room, all the way over. Here it comes, here it comes, and then catch it in that glass. The effect is so much bigger because the concept is so much bigger. Yes. Right. If you get any, if you get nothing else magically from this podcast, <laughs> trust me, that's going to make this is day. worth it right here. Yeah, it's wonderful. And so he he did that. He um he did this trick where he had a he had a penny and a cent. Right. We're in Scotland, remember? I had a penny and a cent, and he says, "What's in my hand? The penny or the cent? The penny or the cent?" That's an old trick, right? And um, finally, you he makes you say, "Well, if if you take out this, it must be a cent." And he says, yes. And he turned his hand over and there was a perfume bottle scent, right? <laughs> but not just a little, per- like a big perfume bottle with a big rubber squeezer hanging yeah, off yeah. of it. And it just made you go, wow. you know. And he did spellbound as well. And it was, you know, copper to silver, copper to silver, then copper to jumble coin, then jumble coin to a tray which he turned over and had drinks on it. What? Seriously. Right? <laughs> what? That made you just leap up <laughs> out of your chair. And unbelievable. So one of the things he did was he did a vanishing die trick, okay, where he put two dice in his hand and he shook them, and they, they vanished. And it was an amazing illusion. And I said, Tony, you got to teach me this. You don't want to learn that. I really do. And for months he just tormented me, and he would do it over and over again. And these things were gone, right? They were gone. And when they shook his, so I, I begged him, begged him, begged him. Finally, one day, he said, okay, if you really want to learn, and you're a teacher, you, you, you want to learn? I said, yeah, okay, so I need to get something. And he went out, and he used to live in a shop, and it was a shop with all the windows were boarded up, right? <laughs> okay. The, the toilets had to, were public bathrooms nearby. Okay. And it sounds like he was living in squalor, but it wasn't. It was very clean, except it was full of stuff, books and pas- pamphlets and manuscripts, but the main shop area was like piled high. And the only place that's come close to it in terms of layout, in, in terms of having stuff everywhere mm-hmm. and a little pathway to walk through, was um, Jerry Andrus's house. Okay. Right? Which yeah. we'll talk about later if you want. So it, in this shop in the back, we would sit in session for hours and hours. Now, I was a, I was a teenage kid, and I have to be honest, like a, a little old guy that looks like the devil going into his window boarded up shawl and talking about <laughs> magic you know I mean yeah I don't know if I'd be happy with my kids doing this no. right but there was nothing nothing like that that just still still wears me out anyway so I've got to get something and he goes out to this outside shop area where there's just tons of junk mm-hmm. it wasn't junk you know he had projects printing projects and he would bind books and weird stuff when he came back with a big hammer and he said okay open your mouth as wide as you can and he held the hammer up 
and I stared at him. I went, what? And he opened his mouth, and he let and he detached his false teeth from the gums, mm-hmm. and he shook his jaw, and it sounded exactly like two dice. Oh God! <laughs> so what he had done is he would say watch, and he would detach these and put it in, and he was shaking his chin very slightly, creating this perfect sound of two dice in the hand. I mean, perfect. And that's how it was done. Wow. Needless to say, I didn't let him knock out all my teeth. <laughs> and I hope I never have to be able to do that trick. But that's... So he was a very interesting guy. And he was you know, an older guy who was really interested in what I was interested in. So when I said, I've got an idea for a coin trick, he would really work on it with you. And then he would ask you questions. You know, well, why do you want to do it like that? Why do you do two moves? Why can't you do one? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So he instilled in me a very um, solid appreciation for less moves, but for direct methods, you know. So even if it meant doing something really difficult to get the effect, that's fine. Only if that's the most direct way to get the effect. Sure. And Roy Walton, too, will talk about him. And the other thing that Sonny did, which I think is still one of my favorite tricks of all time, I was talking about this morning with Jim. He did a, 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 a cabaret piece at one of these magic circle events for the public. And he came out, and there's a microphone stand, and there's a little guy. And, a, you know, and he came out, and he was going to do cards to pocket or some you know, stand-up cards routine. And the microphone was way too high for him. He couldn't reach it. And so he's trying to talk, and the microphone's too high. And he tried to adjust it, but he wouldn't adjust. So he called out to the wings, and two guys came out from the wings and lifted him up at the elbow so he would reach the microphone. So he's now a couple of feet off the ground. And he then dismissed them. And they left him levitating in space (laughs) to continue the routine, (laughs) which he did. That's amazing. And the method was that he had built that microphone stand out of of metal. And there was a female notch, a hole. Sure. And one of his shoes had a metal plate in it with the male end of the notch that went in. And it worked because he had anorexia. And he weighed almost nothing. You know, wow. nobody yeah. else could do this. Trust sure, me. sure. And I, it just blew me away that he used his condition as a method. And that's what he told me. He says, well, I had an erection. I was thinking, how could I use that? <laughs> what? This, you know, blew me away. Really, really blew me away. I still miss him. I mean, he died uh, 88 or 87. I can't remember. I was still quite young. I was in the army when he died, so it must have been 88 or 89. And, um... You know, he just was, again, he was this really cool older guy and he was a magician that no one's really ever heard of. But I'll tell you, I've met all the best magicians in the world. He was way up there, you know, and he wasn't alone. You know, there were other guys I met, you know, that, again, you know, Dave Campbell from Scotland, who was this amazing thinker and a really good performer. I only ever saw him perform in pubs and things like that, but he was a really good performer, very charming really fooling, did all this magic, and I met him, I'd heard of him, I was a young guy, and I met him, and he uh, showed me some magic, and we talked, and he said, well, next time I see you, I'll bring you my notes, and I didn't see him for maybe a year, and he brought me his notes, uh-huh. you know, and just, because he remembered, and I was, you know, I wish I was like that, I'd always forget things <laughs> like that, and he just was really nice, really charming, and um, so obviously, he died, and and uh, they did his book, and um 
I did all the illustrations for the book because I wanted to repay the compliment of giving me his notes. Yeah. But uh, if you don't have the Dave Campbell, legacy of Dave Campbell, book published by International, and if you want really commercial, really clever ideas, most people don't even know it exists. And that guy is as good as many of the magicians I've ever met. But most people have never heard of him. And again, older guy, much older guy. And when I look back, it really was hanging out with those guys that made me, you know, think about magic in a more artistic sense, but also in a, a more complex sense. You know, I really kind of thought about it more than I would have if I didn't have that. You know, and I think, um, you know, Aaron Fisher always likes to talk about, uh, well, maybe not now because he's, he's, he's changed, but, you know, we used to talk about this, about having no mentor. Mm-hmm. He had Jack Berman and, and, and Har- Harvey Rosenfall was another influence on him. And we had these guys, you know, I had Gordon Bruce as well, you know, and you know, you looked up to them because they were really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, they weren't just really good because I was young or inexperienced. They were really, really, really good, right? Yeah. And we got very lucky in our choice of mentors. And the great one for me being, you know, Roy Walton, you know, I mean, couldn't yeah. <laughs> couldn't give me a list of all the great card magicians available and I couldn't have made a better choice if I if I had the choice of everybody. Really got lucky. And it's there's a thing happening now where, you know, you've got all these people, we've got YouTube and we've got all these ways that bring people into magic. But I don't think, even though they could be very talented and very skillful, I don't think they're getting the same value from that that I got from knowing all those older guys. And also being surrounded by a scene, you know, where, you know, Jerry Sadowitz was kind of in there before me and Peter Duffy was... So I was able to learn from those guys and... Uh, you know, Neil Smith, who a lot of guys probably never heard of, but Neil Smith was a really gifted card magician. And, you know, we would we would sort of be hanging out and talking and, you know, we were that level, right? Mm-hmm. And then above us was the Steve Hamiltons and the Douglas Cameron's. And amazing scene we had until until everybody fell out, which is the, the curse of magic, you know, yeah. the thing. So as an older guy, I, 46 doesn't feel old. I'll, I'll tell you that if anybody's interested. It doesn't feel old. I don't think I'm old. I've got two young uh, sons who are way, way smarter than I am. Um, and I'm not saying that just because they're my kids, because they really are. And they're, you know, they're like a reminder of, of, you know, they were just babies a minute ago and now they're, you know, these really high-functioning <laughs> kids. And so... You don't feel like, you, you know, even though you've got these kids and you think, oh my God, I can't believe I'm a father to these kids. You you don't feel like you're 46, but I think you would if you had created those barriers, right? Does that sure. make any sense? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think, you know, you're trying to, you know, you shouldn't be going out there and trying to make movies like a... a you're not separated from youth, you're embracing it. And yeah, it keeps or, you young. Oh yeah, keeping it in, in mind because, you know, it's um, it's an important thing. You have to consider your mortality... And I think um, I think the reason that I'm leaning that way in this discussion is I uh, I just learned today that Jim Patton died. So. So yeah, we'll maybe talk about that in a bit. <laughs> so, yeah. 
I had the immense pleasure of meeting him once at mm-hmm. MagicCon. Yeah. And just sitting near him and mm-hmm. hearing him talk, because I, I, you know, when I went to those conventions, I was trying to find the old guys to sit down yeah. with and zip my mouth and just listen. And so like me. Like guys you. like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks. Well, you had that uh, beard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it just, I, you know, he was just the coolest. You just saw him walk around and like, even if you didn't know who he was, you were like, I want to go be near yeah. that guy. Yeah, I mean, he was the coolest. And yeah. is, he is the coolest. You know, he just was, he didn't have to try, which was a kind of good thing. And he was absolutely one of us. I mean, he was absolutely one of us. And it was, I kind of remember trying to convince him, are you going to come down and go to this magic Oh, I don't know, you know. And, uh, I might go antiquing with Judy. I remember <laughs> saying, you know, I said, you got to come down, you got to come down. And uh, that first Magicon, you know, he was one of the guys who were, you know, he's like, uh, these kids are really good. You know, I remember him saying that. And um, he, I, and, uh, and, uh, and Tony Cabral, and I never met Tony Cabral at this point, but God, I loved him. He's, just, he's like, he was really one of that that old school card, oh yeah, you know, um, guy, you know, and I like to call him old school card monster, you know, it's just this, <laughs> you know, really good at everything, yes, and really, yeah. you know, into the refinements and you know, and we were uh, that particular magic on was you know Jim had left L.A. He'd been in the L.A. scene for so long as as a barman at the castle, and he decided he had had enough of that, and he wanted to go down and. You know, he's driving up every day from Orange County, right? So that meant I wasn't seeing him anywhere near as much. Mm. And uh, he um, he came down to Magicon, and we, we saw this this scene. You know, we saw these guys are serious. These young guys are really good, and they really want to know. They're not just surface scratchers, right? These guys really want to know. And it was a good feeling, really good feeling. And another old guy that was there was J.C. Wagner, who at that point we knew we were going to lose within the next year at that point because yeah. he was very ill. And um, we were sitting outside uh, the hotel, uh, which is the, the, the Hilton down there, and we said, uh, why don't we go across to uh, Cornwall, another island, and see JC? And I'd never seen JC in the bar. So the three of us are sitting there, me and uh, Tony and um, and uh, and Jim. And I, who came with us? Was it Tom Frank? Uh, I'm really embarrassed to say I've, I've, I've blanked it, but I think anyway we, we all got on the, the little ferry and we went over and yeah. went into the little club and it's this little dark hole of a place and there's JC right and he's behind the bar he's serving he's a barman and there wasn't really anybody there to do magic for other than us so we were and we had a lovely lovely day and we were about to get up and leave and then like a dozen lay people walked in oh wow and we all sat down again. Yeah. <laughs> and JC just destroyed. I mean, destroyed. And uh, it was great. Absolutely great. And we came back on a high, on, on, on that little boat ride coming back. Yeah. We were all on a high. And uh, a couple of days later, you know, um, I was having dinner with a couple of guys, and JC was sitting right beside me. And uh, I said to him, The bunnies. He opened with the bunnies, right? Which is a super strong trick. Oh yeah. You opened with the bunnies? I mean, you know, it sounds like way too strong. It's just no, I opened with the bunnies. I mean, you know, you set the tone and everything everything feels as good as that. And he says, Where do you do it? And I said, I don't do the bunnies, Mr. Bunnies. And he, he took my arm and he said, You must <laughs> <laughs> What? 
we're talking about a little bunny trick, right? Yeah, I said, yeah. you must have the trick with a bunny. I'm like, but why? He says, it's a kind of hackney trick. Everybody does it. And he says, yeah. you're not doing it for you. They love it. You've got to do it for them. And so now, when I do it, I don't do it as often as I should. I did it um, a few weeks ago in a show. So I kind of tend to do the, the shows with surrounded, you know, big yeah. tables surrounded by people. One show, maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And... Um, I, I tell the story of JC and I said my friend JC Wagner and before he died I had this conversation with him and I, there's a trick called the bunnies and I described this thing and he says you must do it and they listen and I bring out a bunny and I say well for my friend you know JC I'd like to do this trick for you and I make out that I'm, I'm really not interested in this trick I'm doing it for my friend yeah. and so I go okay here we go and I bring out the little first bunny and I put it on the table and somebody always a woman usually says oh when they see a little bunny you know and I say shut up <laughs> let's just get through this yeah. and I do the trick and then when the little bunnies appear you get the big reaction I've got this little bag and secretly in the bag it's stuffed with little bunnies right mm -hmm. which so I grab a couple off the table and I put them back in the bag but what I'm really doing is grabbing fistfuls of other ones and I'm letting them go as I'm apparently trying to pick them up and now the table is filling with bunnies as I say could you grab a few of these and they're yeah, yeah. really funny but and it's become a really personal thing but it all came from that that trip to Coronado Island and, and from seeing JC and from you know if you're not a magician listening to this you're thinking you know this is this is a stupid story about little sponge bunnies right yeah. but what he was saying was this is an experience that people get a big kick out of I mean, yeah. adults were talking about I yeah. do for kids too but, but you know Magic is not something we solely do for ourselves. I mean, sometimes you've got to remember the audience has things that they like and you've got to give them that. And coming out and just doing, you know, esoteric card magic or just doing, you know, arty presentations. Yeah, it's very self-fallacious. At some point, you've got to do, you know, you've got to sing an anthem. You know, you've got to get everyone to light their little lighters and the hold their hit. hands up. So you've got to do that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, but Jim... Uh, I won't talk too much about you, only because I really am still, you know. Sure, of course. It's only it's only a year ago that Dean left, and you know I drove past his uh, old shop and yesterday, and I'm not a crier. I'm not a crier. You know, I'm one of those guys that doesn't, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, unless I'm watching certain movies. Sure. <laughs> and there's yes. a couple that will always get me, but uh, you know, I mean, I spoke to Jim recently, and he told me you know, he, he had lung cancer, and he lost the lung and all this stuff but uh, it really came out of the blue today but Jim when he was at the castle it was just this scene that grew around him and you know me and Aaron you know I still sleep on Aaron's couch I was like a at one point a welcome friend and then an unwelcome supporter <laughs> right but you know we would go up and we would just hang out at, at Jim's bar which is now Mike Pichotta's bar so which is great because it belongs with a great magician behind the bar yeah but we um, we would go up and Jim would get these vats of chili, you know, the Magic Castle chili would come down and it was five dollars a bowl or something and he was supposed to serve it to guests. And he would maybe sell two bowls in a night, but it would be empty every because me and Aaron would go and empty. We'd just eat for free, right? You'd give us free and um, you know, we'd buy a drink, but I I don't know how we'd all get so drunk on that one drink. Because he mm. kept topping it up, you know. And, and so we 
it was a real scene and we'd hang out down there and, and talk magic and make fun of each other and, and, and other people of course. of course and it was a really great scene and um, he really was a connoisseur so if you showed him a slight mm. that was really clever he would think about it for hours and he would really appreciate it and he'd laugh and he'd have all that stuff and you know he just was, he was a big kid. He was, he was a kid right till the end, you know, he was stylish, you know, I mean, this guy, you put clothes on this guy, I mean, he immediately looked like good, you know, he always wore, always wore Ralph Lauren, right? That was his mm. thing, he always wore that, that's nothing else. And um, he was the only guy I ever thought looked cool with a pipe, right? Even though, fuck pipes and fuck smoking because he died, right? And, yeah. you know, but he sure pulled it off. He pulled it off. And, uh, you know, he, he used to say to me, uh, oh, you're coming from London. Could you go to the, um, the this this tobacco shop and get me this special blend of tobacco? And I said, Jim, I won't do it. Like, I refuse to support smoking. Cause, and I'm very happy the day that I didn't. But, um, you know, he, he just was a cool guy and he was a surfer, right? So he had youth in his, in his veins. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. and he was a surfer. Right up to just a couple of years ago, he would go down to the beach. And even if he wasn't surfing, he'd go down and come back and assess, you know, these kids today, you know, they don't understand, you know. But he was part of the scene and guys knew him, like really famous surf guys knew him. And he, he, so he's an inspiration for that, you know. It, it doesn't end when you get to 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70, you know. And I think Vernon was the inspiration to him for that, where, you know, he was still this guy who was living his life to the full. And I'm sure this has all become very circuitous and very, you know, labyrinthine to try and get to this point. But he definitely exemplified that, you know, never lose the thrill of it, never lose the, the, the joy of it, right? And when I think about these guys that are passing away right now, you know, Dean Dill um, passed away last year and, mm -hmm. you know, now we've just lost um, Jim. And, you know, it's really... These guys are leaving too young, no matter what their age. Yeah. You know, Vernon died, you know, he was still too young. He felt like he, he had more to do. Yeah. And I think if you can die with that, no matter what age, you know, if it felt like you weren't done yet, you know, that leaves people something to do. Yeah. For you, right? A little passing of the torch. So, yeah, uh, today, uh, it's funny, I, I, I just found myself talking about this, and I, it wasn't conscious at all, but I know it's because, you know, um, I found out about that today, and it's still, it's still sinking in. I mean, you know, it's annoying me, because last time I was here, I didn't go down and see him, and I should have, but then, you know, that's always going to be the case, you know, yeah. so, uh, yeah, and, you know, so yeah, if you go back to that original question, you know, how have you been or what have you been doing? It, yeah, it all kind of comes around to that. Everything is put into sharp is relief by the news today of, you know, of, of something ending, but you know, everything that I'm doing is kind of inspired by him and the other elements around it. Yeah. I'm sure none of this is useful. <laughs> this is all making no sense. This is all the point. Yeah, this maybe. is the juice. Maybe. It's a shame I'm driving or I'm telling you we should be drinking whiskey right now. We you? we will do it again and we will drink whiskey. Yeah, I think, you know, we have to, be, you know, um, I've spent long, I remember uh, Jim just wanted to 
I've got to make sure what stories you can tell. Me. It's all right. But Jim just wanted to, one day, he kind of had enough of magician bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about it too much, but it's the sure. stuff we all know. Right? It's the petty The petty whatever, bullshit. Yeah. And I've gone through it, and I've been guilty of it, and so have you, I'm sure. Yeah, so there's everybody listening to yes. this, right? But there's a point where you start realizing it's not helping, and it's not doing anybody any good, and, you know, we, all, we have to stop indulging it. And he had kind of been seeing a lot of it at the castle and um, part of it revolved around me and part of it revolved around other guys that we loved and knew and he it was putting off magic it was putting off the scene and it was making it unpleasant to be around yeah right you have to remember he also worked at the castle he didn't have any choice he had to yeah, do that right yeah, yeah. so he just said you know what fuck it let's go to Aaron's and Aaron was out of town I was staying at Aaron's house and uh, we went to Aaron's and we stopped and he bought a bottle of whiskey. And I mean a big bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Glenfiddich it was. And uh, we went into that room and we just came out a day later. You know, I mean, it was... I've never really done that. I mean, I'm not yeah, a yeah. drinker. I'm not a particularly good drinker. When I was in the army, I once bought a bottle of whiskey and and was drinking it at New Year's. I was in the forces. I wasn't on duty, obviously, and uh, somebody had to take it away from me because I was drinking it. Like, you know, and I really was careful with alcohol after that because I almost killed myself drinking an entire bottle of whiskey. Yeah. I, you know. So that was the only other time where I'd gone through so much alcohol in a short period of time. Yeah. And he, he just wanted to get into a room, close the doors, and he put a deck of cards between us, and we just, you know, yeah, and it was amazing. It was great. It was. I don't, don't didn't want to repeat it because I don't drink well. I'm sure. not a great drinker, but for him it was just some massive relaxation. And you know, um, uh, we, we slept on couches and chairs, and we walked down the Denny's and the <laughs> came back and had a glass of whiskey, and um, you know, and uh, then that night we both were back in the castle. You know, and we kind of let go of all that junk right, yeah, that yeah. had happened, and um, that was a great, that was a really great session. I couldn't tell you any magic I came up with or saw or thought of or discussed that day because it was just about you know that you know two guys just you know drinking and getting that yeah, shit yeah. off our shoulders. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, it was really one of those things, and I felt so privileged. That one of those old school card guys wanted to have an old school card session with him. <laughs> and um, I don't recommend it, by the way. If you have an old school card session, you don't have to have an entire bottle of whiskey there and drink it all, because we drank it all. Of course. It would be wasteful not to. Oh, yeah. It <laughs> would. But, you know, um, it was just it was just really, really great. And, um, you know, I don't know if Aaron's listening to this, but I'm thinking of you today, buddy, because, you know, I'm sure you're hurting today, too. Because Jim was really special, you know, he really was, uh, it was flawed, I mean, I'm not going to talk about his flaws, but, you know, um, he used to, I once sat, sat with him, and he would, he did like 20 mucks, none of them were good, none of them were good, and I had to keep telling him, I'm really sorry, but I can see that, and he's like, oh damn it, he didn't know one, damn it, he didn't know one. And then uh, about half an hour later, it was all kind of uncomfortable because, you know, I was trying to be honest. I didn't want to say, well, actually, that one looks good when it didn't. Yeah. Because then he bust you on that, right? Yeah. 
And then uh, he was just sitting playing with one, and it looked brilliant. And I was like, well, what's that one? And he said, oh, this one's no good. I said, well, that one looks really good. And he was getting upset and angry. And it was really, really cool. So he had this kind of you know, gnarly thing. But he was honest as you could get in terms of that. You know, he was really a friend and, you know, he would uh, speak to you about things, you know, and just sort of father-like in a way, you know. And, sure. You know. So he told me some great stories. One of my favourite stories about him was uh, with Larry Jennings. And Larry liked to drink, right? So Larry would um, would have some drinks, and then the next day he'd say, uh, "I was thinking of this thing, and uh, whose is this?" And Jim said, "Well, that's mine. I showed that to you last night, Larry." No, wrong. Okay. Well, what about this? And he showed this. So, well, actually, I showed you that as well, Larry. He says, "Well, damn it, Jim, you can't have them both." <laughs> you know. And um, you know, so he used to tell all these great stories, and he used to know all these really. He was around it all, and he was a really integral part of it all. And then uh, I used to kind of marvel at the fact that a lot of the enthusiasts of magic were just kind of—he was just a barman, or you know, he was just there. And I wondered if that was the same for Vernon. You know, these people would come in; and they wanted to be great magicians, and Vernon was just there, and they took him for granted. Maybe yeah. I, that definitely happened with Jim. You know, that he was taken for granted. But uh, you know, when I was at the castle, if Jim was there. I was right beside Jim, right, always. And so were the other smart guys like Aaron and, and so forth. So, you know, I think that that's one of the most important things about magic is that we can cross the generations now and we can share. And when that's happening, both sides benefit in the most wonderful and magical ways, right? And when it's not happening, when you're seeing the, the barriers being put up, then everybody's losing. So, you know, I think Jim Patton and Dean Dill and, uh, you know, Sunny Day and all these guys that I've learned from and been very fortunate to be around. And still I'm around, you know, I mean, Roy Walton's in his 80s and I don't think if anybody met him they would ever guess he was near his 80s. He's really, a, um, you know, he's one of those guys that's got youth pouring out of him, mm -hmm. you know, and he's got just the most amazing outlook on life and magic and you know I mean I, I every time I go see him I still feel like a little kid you know, I can't show him a trick never been able to show Roy a trick without thinking you know be feeling comfortable you yeah know? yeah um, but he's he's always there at the moment and you know every time I'm home I'm trying to make sure to get in one day at least to, to see Roy and uh, you know um, it's still there and wherever you are I mean if you're a magician listening to this right now those guys maybe are, are still around you know and you know Aaron reached out to, to Jack Berman and said I want to have lessons and I think Jack I don't know how many he charged him for but it wasn't a lot as soon as he realized he was serious you know he stopped charging this kit because this, and of course he became Aaron Fisher who's you know very talented and you know very good thinker and a very you know very important contributor to modern card magic because an old guy and a young kid are sitting in a room together and yeah. that's the way it works so somehow that's at the heart of everything I'm thinking about today just because of Jim and uh, it's happening all over you know I think when you see it not happening there's there's two aspects to it and I think there's a there's a really creative outlook 
where you take a kid who doesn't know anything, so he doesn't know what he can't do, and can come up with all sorts of great stuff, and sort of you know becomes this his own creative uh, ball of energy, sort of within a vacuum, you know, and you see that coming out every now and again. Um, but that's that's kind of rare. Mostly you see people who are just doing stuff they've learned online. Sure. So um, I'm wondering how all of this, the you know, podcasts, the internet, how we can maybe break those barriers down a little bit and make more access to, you know, the guys out there like the Jim Pattons are still around and the, you know, instead of creating those vacuums or, 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 or worse creating a community of 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 really talented magicians who don't connect with with that generation or don't connect with the, the with books, right? yeah. which we could talk about for a long time. You know, a lot of guys who are really good have never read a book, but they're still really good. Sure. Right? But if we can get them to read books and discover that stuff that's buried in the books and then maybe take those talents and apply it to those, we're all going to benefit. I mean, they're going to benefit. We're all going to benefit. So we, there are things that need to be done in magic. Right? And so I just said at the beginning of all this how, you know, that's kind of... A lot of the things I'm doing are not really magic-based. And yet it's ingrained in everything that I think about. Of course. And, um, you know, I think of myself very much as a magician, but not necessarily always as a conjurer. You know, one of the things I started doing recently is I, I picked up... Um, I, used, I was at art school and I was into portraiture and I loved drawing. So I just thought, I'm going to go back to that and I'm going to start drawing again. And just to see if that helps fire off those neurons that have been dead for, you know, 20 years or whatever. But it all helps the creative process and you know we talk about polymaths we talk about renaissance men and that type of thing or women and you you see that that's one of the things about the new generation of magicians that excite me the most is they're not limited to conjuring they're doing other things Mm -hmm. right that's really important I think and I think that's really uh, exciting and I think that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to become part of that in by by having the guts and the bravery and not just me I'm back you know I'm backed up by my wife you know my wife has to take those risks too of course you know um, and uh, you know otherwise you know everything falls apart and you know your your kids have to take that risk too by yeah. supporting you and you know your family your dog right I mean you know every, so it's not just like I'm breaking out and I, I'm on my own yeah. It's a different experience for me than it would be for, you know, for you even. Yeah. You know? So it's, I don't want to ramble. I can, I've got this automatically don't ramble thing, but I'm rambling. Turn that off. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you I ramble know. as much as you yeah. want. But there is this kind of really great thing about all of this stuff that I've been talking about so far that if I'm sitting here processing it, I begin to wonder if I would be doing this if I wasn't inspired by Dan and Dave, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Who I love dearly. I mean, really, as as people, as apart from anything else, as people, yeah, yeah. right? And you know, and, and you. Thank you. Um, and uh, um, new people that I'm meeting all the time, Lauren, who I think's great. I mean, she's really an interesting person. Um, Ning Kai. Ning is a really interesting person. You should, you know, I'll, I'll connect you with Ning Kai. Okay. Um, who's kind of, 
an inspiration as well because what, she was a professional illusionist working with JC Sun and they were like a double act and uh, traveling the world lecturing and doing shows and being on TV and you know doing all that and then she decided well actually I'd like to write and I'd like to travel more and I'd like to focus on the things that interest me and be a model right she's a beautiful girl obviously but she's a beautiful person on top of all that mm -hmm. you know I mean if you put a sheet over her, you could feel her charisma, right? She's one of those people. Yeah. And when she kind of broke away to do all of that stuff, it's been incredibly successful because it's kind of so natural in her as a person that that's what she should be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I, I look at that. She's one of the people that I've always got in my mind thinking, you know, yes, this is possible. I can make films. And I don't want to make films because I want to have a... Uh, you know, I don't... Sure. You know, I, not because of the stuff that... There are two different types of filmmaker, right? There's people who want to be a filmmaker and make films, and that's what you want to think about all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's people who want to say they're a director, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, we've all got that in us. I've got yeah. that in, in me, right? But of course. The, I literally am not doing this... If nobody watches my films, well, I can still make them. Mm -hmm. I made them for me, and hopefully for the people around me who work with me. And we're all proud of it, right? You know, I can look at anything I've made up to date and say, well, I could have done this and I could have done that, but I couldn't because I didn't have those resources or I didn't have those talents at that point. Right? Yeah. I didn't have those skills at that point. So generally speaking, at the moment, knock on wood, I am very, very happy with what I've done so far. And not just under the conditions that I made it, but in and of itself, I'm very happy. And I hope to always be happy and not just do something for money and stuff. But the endeavor, I really wanted to do this, and I still want to do it. And uh, I don't care, really, if you like it or not. I want you to. But I'm doing it because I feel it's the right thing to do, and I think I've got something to say. And I look at people, and I, and I think, Ning is definitely one of the people that makes me think, yes, if it's the right thing to do, it'll work out, yeah. you know? And so long as I can put bread on the table, I don't have to be a billionaire or a millionaire or anything like that. As long as I'm fortunate enough to do what I uh, what I enjoy doing, and hopefully will be good at, right? And looking around and surrounding myself by people who do these things and different different endeavors, right? But do these things, you know, um, it really is helpful. It really is inspiring. And the more I think about it, the more I think about the inspiration that comes from. Um, this generation of magicians and creators. And there's, you know, I hate the whole hipster culture thing. <laughs> right? I hate it. But no. Says so, so the man with round spectacles. Round and spectacles beard. and a pointy beard. But I hate it because people <laughs> assume I watch part of it, right? And I'm wearing an Apple Watch. But it isn't, it isn't, it isn't the. Who calls himself a filmmaker? <laughs> Who calls himself a filmmaker, right? But it isn't, yes. it, but it isn't the. It's the, it's the hipster culture label that I hate. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because there are some people who embrace that. That's what they want to be, just like someone likes to say they're right. a filmmaker. But there are people who just enjoy that life and, yeah. and indulge in it. And, you know, they don't just say it's artisan because that's a cool word and it's a good label. Yeah. They do it because they really like to do it. And they, and they really about care it. about it. And you feel that passion. So the people who feel that passion and the people who want the lifestyle part of it, right? Yeah. The hipster lifestyle, they want to do it as a 
And, and next year they'll do something else because that's the lifestyle that's attractive or that's the fashion or whatever. So I feel like I'm part of it, but not because of this. Um, and I like this. I like my beard and I love my glasses. I think it looks right? great. Yeah, your glasses and I, awesome. you know, I don't have any hairstyling options on the top of my head, <laughs> right? This is the only one I've got. So I'll, I'll take what I can get. But I do... It's easy for people to, to dismiss you with that label. Yes. Right? And yeah. just say, oh, well, it's just, you know, a bunch of hipster bullshit, right? Or yep. whatever. And yet, there's plenty of hipster bullshit and I can feel it and I can sense it and I can hate it. Mm-hmm. But when I come across somebody who just loves what they're doing, it, it flows, right? It it's flows. so energizing and yeah. fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that guy who, you know, is the filmmaker with his, you know, with his collar up, driving around, you know, and, you know, you know, hey, hey, I'm a filmmaker. Right? That guy isn't the guy that interests me. Yeah. It's the guy sitting there going, well, what was, why did you do that in that movie? Why, you know, why does that work and why does that not work? And, and then you start talking on those levels and that passion comes out. Those people really interest me and it's yeah. at every single level. And I, I sometimes find myself really fortunate to be surrounded by those people. And, you know, I, I had a great conversation a few days ago um, with uh, when my son, Cameron, we were talking. And, you know, Cameron is... Uh, He's a physicist. Um, he's uh, just been accepted, an unconditional acceptance into uh, Glasgow University for theoretical physics. Wow. He works really hard. He was at CERN a couple of years ago. Jeez uh, Louise. With, with his school. You weren't you know? kidding about him being smarter than yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. And, he sounds uh, amazing. He is amazing. And, and uh, he's, you know, he works incredibly hard and, you know, I'm really impressed. And, you know, this... If you're a father, right, you know, a lot of people listen to this will be a father or a mother or something at one point. And there's a point where, you know, you're looking at stuff that this kid is doing. And going, well, you know, it's <laughs> way beyond, right? And um, so you're always looking for stuff that you can relate. And uh, he loves films and he loves, he loves magic, you know, he loves travel. And um, we've got the same sense of humor and he's a really bright kid. And I was just talking to him, called him from from here and I was talking to him on the phone and uh, we started talking about Studio Ghibli and the animation movies that he's really passionate about Okay, and that I, I've seen a few and uh, you know there's a few that I like and you know I, I love this I love the story of the studio and of the of the of the people involved with the studio and that that really interests me and the films I don't find as intriguing as him until we had this conversation. And here's this guy who's really passionate about the subject and really able to express himself about the subject. And I find myself being inspired to watch more of the movies because he is now putting them into a context that I understand. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it really was intriguing to me that. You know, I'm learning from my son. Yeah. Right? Really. And I get that. My corner is the same. You know, corner is, uh, you know, he's a young guy who, um, no, I could talk about my kids for hours. So can anything. No, go ahead. But, you know, you know he's, he's a young guy who really is smart and amazingly talented as a musician as well. And, you know, I, he plays guitar. And it, sometimes it's, it's a problem because he plays 
all types of guitar, but you know, he plays it loud. And I, I was brought up, you know, I was when, when Metallica's first album, Kill 'em All, came out, I bought it from John Menzies in the Armadale Centre in Livingston. <laughs> in 1980 something because it had a picture of a hammer and blood on it I didn't know it was bad and it was called Kill Em All so I'm going to buy this this will piss everybody off when I bring it home right so and it was and I'm a huge Metallica fan though, and always happy but I bought it because there was blood and a hammer on the cover let's yeah, be honest yeah. right? so I know good guitar music mm-hmm. and I'm hearing it coming out of you know his bedroom and he is really good and uh, he did very well, as, uh, you know, at school, and he went to university and out of college, and he was going into university right after. And he did uh, mechanical engineering design, got an A and all that stuff. But as soon as he started the second year, you could tell that this wasn't for him. Yeah, you could tell he wasn't. But he's one of those people that really wants to see things through and doesn't like to not see things through. And so it was really interesting to, to discuss with him because you can't talk him into anything. He's going to do it or he's not going to do it. He knows his own mind. It's, if you don't want to do this, you should do what you want to do and you should figure it out. And he was like, well, I started the second year. I think I should see it through. And I really was like, wow, this, I, I mean, this is inspirational, right? I mean, I wish sure. I felt that way. But I'm his dad saying, actually, maybe you shouldn't in this case because... Yeah. You know, if you don't want to do this, you should spend your time doing what you want to do. And not only that, you're at the early stages where it's acceptable. You could you could bow out now, and he did, and he's now applying for film and television, and he wants to be a filmmaker. And uh, now that he's got that spare time, he's in demand. He's doing uh, uh, internships. He's doing. Uh, he's being paid to work on films. He's. Um, you know, an asset on set. So all these local filmmakers, young filmmakers and older filmmakers are now using him. And he worked on Con Men. Uh, in fact, he was very important on Con Men. He worked, uh, you know, I found out very quickly that this was a real asset to mm-hmm. a film set. Not just because I, you know, I, he was on Our Magic and was really important in Our Magic. Um, but, you know, I found out that this is a really reliable guy. Despite the fact, you know, he's my kid and everything. Sure. But this is someone I can, I can rely upon. And now that he's got spare time, he's being used and people are trying to get him. He's so conscientious. But, you know, when you talk film with him, his understanding of film is so far in advance of what my understanding of film was at that age. And it's really interesting that it's taken me this long to get here. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of almost already knocking on that door at, at that early an age. What do you think that is? Because it's kind of what you're speaking to about magic and, mm. you know, the youth second dealing on the floor and yeah. being 12 years old and then your son. It, what, what Do you think that's just the plethora of information at in people's fingertips now? or? Well, there's a definite thing. I've commented on this before. I think we've discussed this before. Where the, the generation ahead of you sets the bar, right? So when I was a kid, there were things that were really, really difficult, and I've told you it was the second deal, or bottom deal, or middle deal, right? But now I've got friends like Jason England who can do all these things brilliantly, and Derek Delgado, and you know I'm into these things as well, and we spent all our lives doing it, and we've gotten to the stage, and then we turn around and there's the twelve-year-old on the floor doing it, right? Yeah. Because he came in, it was normal. There's all these guys doing it. We couldn't see that being done, but now these kids come in and they got the Steve Forty videos, and they got the Jason England videos. And yeah. 
okay and they've gotten a head start they got the information but they also got the inspiration they got the example to follow mm -hmm. and that's how evolution works each generation learns from the last and gets slightly and starts slightly further ahead right so they don't start from the beginning each time they start it's a baton race sure and every time that baton is passed or taken right <laughs> um, the the next generation advances sure. there are certain things that you know go forward and backwards you know I mean reading books I'll say it before, I've said it before I'll say it again if you don't read books you won't be as good a magician as you can be I think I said before you won't be a very good magician but that's not true you can be a very good magician and never read a book but imagine how good you would be if you would take that on because you know people say it's difficult it's just a skill you got to learn it um, yes watching DVDs seems easier or, or, or downloads but it isn't mm -hmm. You know, um, if we go back to film for just a second, you know, we does this. Yeah, we can stay on film. I, that's yeah. Just... But I, I, you know, I can talk with authority on magic. And yeah. With film, I feel I can talk with authority, but that doesn't mean I have authority. Right? <laughs> that's a different sure. thing. Okay, okay. But I, there's, you know, the twenty-four frames per second mm -hmm. projected through uh, a, a lens. Mm -hmm. So there are twenty-four distinct images being flashed up on that screen. Yes, is a different thing to what we're seeing with digital technology. And what happens with that 24 frames per second, and I believe this, I believe this before, you know, Quentin Tarantino just said it in an interview, but I believe this beforehand. What it does is it engages your brain, and your brain creates that illusion of persistence of vision. Yep. And it makes those 24 images become motion. Mm -hmm. And it does it in the subconscious, right? But your brain is involved, and therefore you are actively engaged in the image. But when you go to 48 frames per second or 60 frames per second, it becomes more passive. And it starts to influence you rather than you be engaged with it. And there's a difference going on there. And I believe that's similar to the books, right? Mm -hmm. Where when you read a book, you engage with it mentally and you conjure the understanding, right? The information goes in, you process it, and you get the output. And it may not be correct. It may not be exactly correct. And you may come up with something better or worse, yep. but you, you're involved. Whereas when you watch a guy do a magic trick and give an explanation, you're just getting that information. You're, you're observing the information and then copying it. And that's a different process. And so when you, because I believe very strongly in retaining that 24 frames per second experience, I got nothing against all the other experiences, including 3D, including 48 frames per second. It's all interesting. And maybe we'll hit upon something that says revolutionary is persistence of vision at 24 frames per second. I just don't think we've done that yet. I don't think we've got the most engaging thing. I think, you know, we're still at the point where that works. And I think it will always work. But maybe someone will come across a 3D technique at 97 frames per second or something that somehow clicks with the brain in a weird way. Mm -hmm. No, we're not there yet. So it's all good and it's all great. I still think I saw Halloween projected on uh, a few weeks ago and it was terrifying. I've seen that movie a thousand times. It was terrifying. And all of that work that John Carpenter did to psychologically um, lead the audience and create these terrifying moments are complemented by the illusionary quality of the medium that you're watching it in, and I've seen it on 
DVD and I've seen you know all these different formats but when you're sitting there and there's one source of light filling your brain like you know that fucking hell that's so good and it is so great and you took it for granted. We all took it for granted because it was yeah. how everything was projected when I saw it, right? Yeah. Now it's all on digital screen and it's still great. But when you go back to it, it's kind of refreshing in a way that I didn't expect. And I believe that books are very much the same. You know, that you need to learn that skill and experience that skill just like we need to get the new generation into seeing projected 35 millimeter films. And they're probably sitting there first, first thing and go, I don't get it. What was so special about that? But subconsciously, it's having a deeper impact. And it's happening more and more. Now we've got the Hateful Eight and, you know, the experience. It's in vogue right now. It's in vogue. And I hope that vogue isn't a passing fancy. Sure. I hope what it is is that, like, you know what? We almost lost it. It almost went away. Kodak almost died. And, you know, Fujifilm. You know, we need to we need to revive those processes, mm. and we need to keep them alive. And I'm very passionate about it right now because that's the project I'm working on now. It's trying to prove that, yeah, we've got no money. We, we've got a very low budget projected for our next feature, but we've got great imagination. We've got fantastic ideas. I mean, really great ideas. But we want to prove that for a low budget filmmaker like me and my my uh, my team, film is still an option. And it's still a palette that we can paint from. Mm -hmm. And its budget means we've got to have our money a little bit more, but not a lot more. I mean, when you think about the entire digital process, you know, there's time and money constraints there too. But with film, it allows us to make some choices that for our particular project are really important in terms of shadows and latitude and, and making sure that that's absolutely black and stays absolutely black through all the mediums that it will be viewed. And that we will eventually be able to project this because that's where it came from. It, it started this entire story, which I won't go into too much because it's not really... Of course. But it started with uh, an exhibit in uh, Madrid a few years ago. Maddie Gilbert and I were both there together. And uh, Juan Tamers was performing in a, in a museum exhibit dedicated to Georges Méliès. Oh, wow. And so I had the whole place to myself while he was performing. So yes... I let Juan perform while I wandered into the Melies exhibit. I've seen the show many times. But I had it to myself. And one of the, the things they kept running for me was the Phantasmagoria Magic Lantern exhibit. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is the start of everything. Right? And it inspired an, a notional idea in me that is the heart of the story. So yes, of course, I want to film it on film. And I want to project it. And that was that conversation with Alan. I really want to shoot this on film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, expecting this, him to slap me and go, don't be stupid, we can't afford it, it has to be shown on digital. No, it's like, you're absolutely right, we have to do this on film because it is the medium of the story. Yeah. And so to keep that alive and to keep that going is really important right now because we got to the edge of the cliff and it could have been that there would be no more film. It would be, you know, but thanks to Christopher Nolan, thanks to Tarantino, thanks to Spielberg, thanks to... Um, uh, um, Paul Thomas Anderson you know film is not just becoming an aesthetic choice of very advanced very you know masterful filmmakers mm -hmm. who are demanding it and therefore you know it's kind of being kept for them it's available to us 
I just saw a film Mississippi Grind. Um, oh, I heard show. about it. I heard it was great. Yeah, it's really you know a strong character piece, sure. and they shot it on, on film. You know, and that was not a big budget movie. It was not a tiny budget movie like ours, but it was that was a choice. Mm-hmm. And I believe, and I, you know, actor. I was just with a really great actor, Bruce McGill. And if you don't know who Bruce McGill is, look him up, and you're going to go, I know that guy. He's in everything. Have you ever seen um? My cousin Vinny. Yes. He's a sheriff in My Cousin Vinny. Okay. You know, I shot the clerk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that guy. And um, he was a really good guy and spent a couple of weeks together. And he, I said, uh, I was asking him about all of his experiences. He's worked with everybody. And the reason he's worked with everybody is because he's a great character actor. And I was asking him, what, what pisses you off when you're on set? What director's do you like and what do you not like and you know what's the kind of, I'm trying to learn right I'm trying to get some and here's a guy who can tell me about working with everybody and he mm-hmm. told me great stories and um, I said what do you think about working on film he said I love it everybody's focused everything is prepared you can't you know whereas with digital it's still great mm-hmm. but there's that feeling of they can keep going you know they can just keep going they can yep. keep rolling whereas this thing about film that it has a focus to it, you know, to, you know, a bit of a pun, but it has a focus to it. Sure. That digital workflow does have, but it just, there's, everybody knows we've got, we've got to be on the money on this and we've got to be ready on this and we've got to, when we shot Conman, you know, we shot it on digital, but I treated it like it was rolls of film and I, I had, you know, on every single setup, it was, you know, we just can't keep going and going and going. We've got to, you know, manage this. Now, yes, I was putting everything off the disc as it was being shot, but mm-hmm. we we tried to respect that feeling of, you know, there's a limited amount of time and there's a limited amount of footage that we can capture. Therefore, we'll imagine that this is a canister of film as we pushed it into the camera. And that really helped. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I think right now with film and the use of film, and we want to really highlight that with our project, is it's a viable option for all filmmakers. I, I don't want to always shoot on film. I don't want to always be limited to that. I might want to use this for this. Just an amazing, um, great film which Roger Deakins shot on Alexa cameras, digital. And it looks astonishing. Sicario, have you seen Sicario? No, it's no. great, really great. And it looks amazing. It really does look amazing. And um, so it's possible to do anything but for that workflow they were they were shooting in you know cities they you know film would have put pressure on them that maybe they made the decision this was better but I like to think it was more I think this is going to look better for the story and I think mm-hmm. because it's Roger Deakins I'm sure that was the, the heart of the decision sure, right? sure. but that relates in, in a way to books in magic and books in general I mean, in that you know Yes, we've got downloads and yes, we've got DVDs and of course I've done many of those. But we really need to keep a hold of that medium because that medium creates better magicians and thinkers and creators because it engages them more. And so if if you really want to get better, pick up a book. And if it's hard, it's supposed to be hard. Everything's hard at the beginning. So, you know, I think... um, I don't know how we got onto this. I really don't, but 
I'm sure you, you haven't said anything on this damn podcast. That's fine. You could have just mailed me this microphone. I could have. <laughs> could have just sat at home and It's babbled. heavy. I'm sure you have your own microphone. But, uh, you know, I, I believe... Um, I believe that you can be as good as you really want to be at anything. It's really just a matter of putting the work in. Yeah. And part of putting the work in is doing the hard stuff. You know, if you want to learn to be a filmmaker, you can just go out and shoot films and you can just do that. I, I believe that. But if you really want to be good at it, you've got to learn the hard stuff. And that means you've got to learn why you put the camera where you put it. And you've got to learn why other people made those decisions. And you've got to understand the rules and then you can break them. And, I, I you know, I said, uh, I, I did this little thing called the 13 paths. You remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's great. So one of the things that was for me, I wrote that for me. I wrote it for me to understand. And most of it works for all forms of creativity. And not, not even if you agree with it all, if you disagree with it all, it's still good. That's you being creative. Yeah. If you disagree with it all and you know why, then that's a very powerful thing. But I set that out mostly for myself. And one of the things was learn the rules and then break them. Otherwise, you're just, you're not really, even if you get it right, you're still losing out on an important part of the process. And equally bad, of course, would be to learn the rules and then follow them, mm-hmm. you know, without question. Which is kind of a thing, you know, where I'm veering off again. Now, Here we go again. Let's go. So here's another thing, right? Formulas. Yeah. There's a passion for formulas and there's a passion for um, lists, right? And, mm-hmm. and rules and, and you know, uh, 10 ways to guarantee you can, you know, whatever or, you know, whatever. There's just, it's all over the internet, it's all over the medium and yeah. people are attracted to it because Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the best selling books of all time and for good reason. It's a good book, right? Yeah. However, what tends to happen with formulas and rules is they get they fall into the hands of non-creative people, mm-hmm. and then they become a binding mechanism for them to judge creative people, right? So you get creative people who 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 are then judged by people who've read those rules and says, "Well, the rules say." The people who wrote the rules never intended that, right? No. And so beware of formulas. Always beware of formulas. Learn from them. Look at them. Go, oh, that's interesting. But then keep expanding and thinking and creating and I think especially now whether everywhere you know if you've if you're a Twitter follower and you follow um, you know life hackers a great great uh, account Twitter mm-hmm. guy follow that but there's tons of these you know yeah um, and sometimes you read it and it seems blatantly obvious and stupid but <laughs> you know you read it and you go oh, that's actually quite interesting but I think there's a real skill that you have to learn of absorbing that stuff and then Letting whatever stick stick, rather sure. than writing it down and trying to do that every day, and then you have to be really careful with that stuff. And I think it's one of the, the problems with the internet is first of all, it's driving us all further apart when it was supposed to bring us all together. And I can't fully explain that, but it is. Um, it's isolating us in a way. I don't know why. Um, even though I can look on Facebook right now, I learned from. Facebook today that Jim died, right? I now. saw Gary Plants. Yeah, I saw that, and I saw yeah. it. I, 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 no, it's awful. And I know. There's a picture of Jim. Oh, and then rest in peace. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, there's that. And then, um, but the, the internet is just flooding you with information. Yes. And I remember the thrill of it. I was with Danny Garcia. I remember exactly what it was. We were sitting talking about something together, and I know exactly what it was, too. And, um, we were sitting in uh, Colorado, 
it was at the Magic in the Rockies convention. We were at the little restaurant across the street. And uh, by the way, Magic in the Rockies, which I hope they do another one. They didn't do one last year. It's one of the best conventions in America. And if you can get to it, it's fantastic. Really fantastic. But uh, we were there. And this was, I don't know, how many, however many years ago it was. And we both had iPhones, right? And then probably first generation iPhones. And we were trying to tell each other about something. And he was saying about this, uh, this news anchor was on the news. And he was, the story was about uh, a wanted rapist, right? Okay. And there was a photo fit of the wanted rapist. And it looked just like... It looked exactly like yeah, you yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, he was explaining that to me. And yeah. I was going to explain to him a guy who um, was... And it's, if you look for leaping lizards, you might find it, right? And it was a guy on morning TV, uh, a really, you know, a kind of Al Roker-esque, very competent, totally with it and in control morning host um, who's done this a million times. And the, the guest is an animal handler who's brought along a couple of lizards, right? One of them is a gecko. And the gecko jumps onto his jacket and sticks to his jacket. And this guy just completely loses all function <laughs> immediately and falls over and it's the funniest thing you've ever seen and I think it's if you find leaping lizards you might find it yeah. and anyway it's one of the fun and he gets up and immediately recovers and becomes himself but you know his TV self and his real get the fuck, fuck, fuck and he's doing this we're trying to describe this to each other yeah. me and Danny Garcia yeah. and we both realise at exactly the same time that we can show this to one another <laughs> and we look it up on the internet and we swap phones and we watch I look at the picture he showed me which is hilarious and, and kind of tragic at the same time <laughs> and he's looking at the sleeping lizard thing and laughing and we thought this was fantastic mm-hmm. and this is what the internet has become now it's on Facebook right and you can you can just show it to the whole world right but that's somehow isolating us and separating us and now you have this amazing amount of information without this growing feeling of knowledge and don't think oh this is an old guy thing talking it's just I can see it right mm-hmm. I've got a perspective and I can see it and if you're early teens or you're younger or you're even 20 you might be thinking well I don't get this I don't know what Paul's saying right now and I'm, I don't really fully understand what I'm saying now either because I'm just starting to notice it because I've really embraced it I've loved it all but now I'm beginning to think you know you go to China, in fact, you're in Hollywood, you, you know, yes, everyone's just looking at their phones. Mm-hmm. And there was a point where that was just a kind of crotchety, you know, old man thing to say, yeah, everyone's on their phones, you know, but yeah, yeah. actually, I'm, I am too, right? And I'm realizing I'm missing so much. And you look around and people are missing so much. And, you know, if you drive with your phone and you're texting while you're driving, seriously, go and punch yourself. Do it now. Right, because you're an idiot for doing that. Not an idiot in life. You're an idiot for doing that. I've done it. You've done it. Yep. Right. Um, everybody outside in that room who we know, I said maybe sure Coley, is. who's smarter than all of us, right? Coley will outlive us all. Yes. I mean, you know, but we've all done. It, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a fucking stupid thing to do, and you will kill yourself or other people. So we have to stop doing it. And so, but that's one of the things that you know. You ten years ago, if you described this, this phenomenon of people walking around uh, you know what I saw today what? I saw a guy on one of those hover we call them hoverboards right yeah, yeah. one of those electronic skateboards no skill required right <laughs> so you stand on that and now you're a skateboarder um, and he was going through 
along Hollywood Boulevard with a selfie stick recording <laughs> video of himself doing nothing. Not talking, just doing nothing. And it's in front of his face while he's moving through people. It's stupid, right? It's stupid. And it's we're in the future, folks. Here we are. <laughs> but I'm not saying this as a sort of, you know, I, I'm trying not to be the grumpy old man because no, there's nothing helpful about that. I'm just saying that just like film, right? That thing of film was almost gone and then we've all realized, actually, we don't want to lose this. This is a great option. Yeah. And it does great things. Um, and books, right? It's kind of like, okay, we've all kind of had the thrill of it and now we've kind of got to the point where we're abusing it to, to some extent. We need to rein it in. We need to rein it in and, and, and kind of put it in its place, which is is as, as, a, as a useful tool mm-hmm. to do all the wonderful things that it does. And I kind of think social media is still waiting to find that, where we kind of use social media more as a glue and less as a wedge, right? Yeah. Which is where it is right now. It feels very much like, um, you know, I hate anonymity online. You know, mm-hmm. if you've criticized anybody anonymously, you're a coward. Yeah. Right? Um, the internet encourages that. Um, it encourages cruelty. You know, people being cruel to one another. Yes. That, that's not helpful but that's starting to, to rain back but that's also gone the other way you know where now that the criticism is over the top right sure you know, where, so but it will find its place it, it, the, the pendulum swings from side to side it finds its place so how did we get into all of this um, uh, what was it what was the question <laughs> what have you been up to <laughs> not much I think I think um, Apple making the watch speaks to that the fact that, you know, it does take the sort of the leaders of industry to move in the direction so that you can just glance at your watch instead of pulling out your phone and driving yeah. the watch between the person in front of you. You asked me about it earlier. I, I didn't want the watch. I felt that was an interesting thing when it started. I thought, you know, it's doomed because I don't want one. Because, mm. um, you know, I, I, love, I love all this stuff, right? Yeah. But uh, a couple of friends got one, Alan Hagen being one of them. Yeah. And... Uh, I asked somebody, I said, well, what's the big deal about the watch? And he says, you know what? You don't take your phone out of your pocket so much. That was it. And immediately I saw a place for it. And it's true. I don't take the phone out of my pocket as much. Mm-hmm. I glance and I see what the message is. That's a problem, right? That's an interesting problem the watch has introduced to us all is that I could be talking to you right now and I get a little tap on my wrist so I look to see who it is. And you're thinking, you got somewhere to go, Paul? You bored? Am I yeah. boring you? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know... Uh, history has made that yeah. that action all about um, what you know next? what time is it or I'm a little bored or I wonder if I've got to go next yeah. but you know um, the uh, you know there's you know, I'm looking at it now because you know uh, Alan the DP we were talking about earlier saying hey I'm on my way what are we doing for breakfast tomorrow I mean this is the future I'm living in yeah yeah my eight year old self didn't imagine <laughs> any of this um, whereas you know other eight year olds who are now 12 or 15 or 20 or, you know they grew up with this they have one and a hoverboard and a selfie <sighs> yeah, stick yeah I mean and the selfie stick and all this I stuff. have to say those hoverboards are sick they're so fun <laughs> well I haven't been on one yet because I think there's a way <laughs> but I I'm not interested in that. That, that, that. that particular thing doesn't interest me. I wouldn't want one. Yeah, but, but it's nice to play I have it. to say, it'd be nice to kind of just play on one or maybe, you know, if I there was a game, like some kind of game that you got on sure, one, you yeah, did yeah. that and you fell over and had fun, <laughs> you know, I, that would be kind of cool. 
Uh, we were talking about people that, that I think are really interesting and inspirational right now. You know, and you know, um, Alejandro Portales. You know, he's an interesting guy. I still don't know what the hell he does. No does any of us know what he, he does? Is, he is an enigma. <laughs> he is an enigma, right? But he, he is, is an unbelievably handsome enigma. Yeah. Has anybody noticed that he's handsome? I've I guess. Noticed. I guess some people. He's ridiculously noticed. good. He is ridiculously good looking. But he's um. He's just one of those really encouraging guys. I don't yeah. know why. I don't. He's yeah. I, I really liked him when I when I first met him. I couldn't. Exp- what does he do? What do you, I mean? Does I, and that's that's the other thing too. I don't really do any magic or flourishing. He says, and then he picks a deck of cards up, and he's fantastic. Yeah, that really you know pisses me off. So, <laughs> but you know, there's lots of these guys around, and there's there's this interesting thing I wanted to get into because we mentioned Lauren. Mm-hmm. Do you know Lauren? I do. You 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 really turned me on to Lauren, I think, because she had written that article. Mm-hmm. And I agreed with a lot of it. I felt it was too long. I told her I felt it was too long because you've got great points and you, you can get them across in, in another way. Yep. But reading it was really interesting because I'd heard it all before. Not quite so well put, like, to be honest. Or so generously put, actually. You know, yeah. you know. Um, but she, I think, is part of a growing community that has to not be segregated. Because, you know, female magicians, let's just say female magicians, it's easy to segregate them because there's so so few of them. And yet, in the last 10 years, as we start to see, you know, Ines Machia, uh, Alexandre de Vivier, and, um, you know, Faye Presto, and, you know, there's just so many that you could name, but it gets hard after a while. You know, Ninkai, she was called Magic Babe Name for a long time. It was a very marketable name. Yeah. But she was a more interesting performer and magician and character and personality than a babe, if you ask me. And she certainly was beautiful, but sure. and still is. But, you know, there was that thing of what she really sold was this personality. And, mm-hmm. you know, but she, you, you could stand her beside any magician. So was a, the reason I brought this up was there was an interesting thing. I won't name the magician, but it was a female magician. Somebody had seen her recently. Um, in overseas and uh, I said oh uh, how were they he says oh well I liked her more than I liked her magic and I said oh this is a completely person sure and I said oh uh, what was wrong with her magic oh it's wonderful and it took a moment for it to sink in and she said many magicians it's the other way around and I thought wow wow talk about you know, a great lesson in magic, you know. Of course I always want people who like me more than the magic. Yeah. That's the point, right? And so I think there's this thing right now where that masochism and magicians thing is mostly an ignorance amongst the male magician community, right? And it is sometimes it's just pure masochism. There's There's no excuse for it at all. But a lot of it's just unfamiliarity and, you know, it's a new thing. Misogyny, is that? Misogyny. Did I say masochism? Yeah. Is it because we're in the bedroom? <laughs> I'm trying to process that masochism. Misogyny is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, say it isn't masochism. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. In the misogyny. Yeah. Well, masochism and magic do go well together. That's true. I have to say. That is very true. I go to, I go to 
conventions, and I feel like, why did I do that myself? <laughs> yes. I- um, but actually, you know, I mean, you know, you could make an easy, you can make an easy jibe at my expense, and you'd probably be right. But there's this interesting thing, maybe uh, being involved with male magicians is a form of masochism to, to, to some extent, because you, sure. you're putting up with some a very well-known magician who I love dearly as a good guy. Mm-hmm. I remember him. Uh, a friend of mine, she went up and she wanted to buy a trick that uh, you sold, and which she did after that, and she did it perfectly. And he said, so who's this for? Oh, it's for me. Oh, it's for your boyfriend? No, it's for me. Your husband? And it was like, oh my God. Yeah. What the hell? So yeah, mas- so, so masochism. No, yeah. it's just coming out. I just can't yeah, say yeah, yeah. it. Misogyny. Sure. Yeah. Um, misogyny. You can edit all that out. I would like you to edit that out. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the misogyny angle with magicians, I think, has a lot more to do with social issues than it does with magic issues. I don't think it's really about magic. I think it's more about, you know, um, familiarity of people in this particular art form from all types of things. And, you know, I've I've experienced all sorts of problems in the magic community that, that are attached to the fact that, you know, older generations see things differently to younger yes. generations. Yeah. And so we're in this kind of thing. But I kind of think it's this interesting thing happening right now where we're learning, if we're really smart, we're learning from people who are encountering these problems. Yes. That's what I wanted to get to. Who are overcoming these problems and kind of shining a light on these problems to the point where those of us who are guilty of it to some extent, we just have to be because you know, we're human beings, are kind of taught through experience to just stop making a big deal of it. Yeah, And that's where we're getting to right now with a lot of things. And it's, it's also the same with the youth, you know, in magic and, and being treated better than they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, with the issues that I think Lauren shone a light on very well, I don't really think it's a good thing to turn it into this big deal, right? Because it is a big deal. I think it's better to do exactly what she did. I said, set my piece, and I'm doing what I'm doing, and I'm loving what I'm doing, and I'm having a great time. And it it was the best thing about the article was that it forced the subject into the light in such a way that it didn't become a difficult topic. That was really the genius of the article because it came from somebody who's one of us and who's got the same passions as the rest of us. Yeah. So that, I think, relates a lot to what we were talking about earlier with the, the generational thing and the barriers breaking down between the generations so that it becomes nothing. It just becomes, you know, whoever you are, it, the whole thing just becomes entirely a meritocracy. Yes. A masochistic meritocracy. <laughs> <laughs> it, will for, it will never not be masochistic yeah but you know it, it has to be done it has yeah. to be addressed but if you kind of address it and then don't start making you know you could you could easily start saying you know I want uh, you know I want to keep pointing fingers or I want to maintain some level of uh, responsibility for past um, transgressions you sure. could do that. That's absolutely doable. Yeah, yeah. But what's the point? 
Yep. You know, at some point you just kind of have to help people through it. You mm-hmm. know, I have, um, I remember, you know, these are difficult topics because it's so easy to come across as, as, as bad. And, you know, I, I think we're all guilty of something. But, you know, past generations of racism, for example, is one of those things that, you know, you can listen to the way your grandparents used to talk and think. Still talk. And still talk, right? And you think, oh, my. But can we fix that in their generation? No. We can. We, we could, you know, there's an education we could try. Or is it actually quite a good thing that those of us are, are, are self-aware enough or, or, or socially aware enough to go, oh, my God, I can't believe. That's what they used to say. I think it's, yeah, I, I think, think it's good a, to have that thing to rage against. Yeah. You know, but I think, the gen, I, think the, I think the next part of that is, is, is my kids and their kids saying, um, I've got the tap on uh, my kids and their kids no longer seeing the world through those filters. Yeah. Right? That, that's going to take a couple of generations to fix. There's no automatic question. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I wish I would be alive to see that. Yeah. I don't think if I live to 100, I will see that. Because, you know, there are people who are fighting to keep that. And it keeps coming back, you know, this, these awful ways of looking at the world. And you hear it and you see it and, you know, Donald Trump... Oh, by the way, if you're a Donald Trump supporter and I've offended you, good. But, you know, this guy is a joke. He's an absolute... I hate this. I hate people seeing America through the filter of American politics. That is... It's that's awful. my biggest argument against Trump. Yeah. Is that every other industrialized democracy in the world views that as a joke and if he's elected America's no longer but even if he's not elected the fact he's a contender yeah. is appalling I'm sure somebody's waiting in the wings letting this all play out so that they come come across much better this, I'm sure that's that's the big game plan by somebody because that man's an idiot and Americans are not idiots you know I mean one of my friends um, whenever we get together we talk and he's very much a Republican if I was an American which I'm not I would probably be um liberal but middle of the road liberal yeah um so i'd probably be a, a democratic supporter with a, with limits but i wouldn't you know donald trump oh my god i mean you know trump means fuck where i come from i mean it does you know, <laughs> yeah a trump is something you do in your underpants so that the fact that he is rallying that kind of support based on that kind of bias is really disturbing and I'm, I'm a British person, so some Americans are listening to this right now going, well, screw you, you know, go back to Britain. I don't, we've got the worst problems in Britain. I mean, you know, we've, and historically we're, you know, we've, our crimes are, you know, especially against India and places like that, you know, mm. so historically we've, we've done some awful things. But, you know, we had a party in our election um, who's very bigoted and, and, and got enormous support, UKIP. And, you know, they had these same types of beliefs and they have the same kind of ridiculous leader, mm-hmm. you know, and they got support and people kept rationalizing their support for these awful people. And, you know, I, I don't particularly think very much of our leaders either, to be honest. And so I can look at the politicians here and make the same jokes that they make on the Daily Show and, the and you know, but trust me, we've got our fair share. Of course, yeah. But it... It shines a light on the fact that those biases still exist. So 
it's gotten a little bit dark right now, but it really reminds me that, you know, yes, these problems exist. And I think by us discussing them and by allowing it to be discussed so that, you know, those of even people who feel that way and have expressed those negative qualities can be invited to the positive party. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a good thing. Because it's difficult. I'm trying to be very careful right now so there's no soundbite someone can pull out and say, listen to what Paul said and then take it out of context. You know, Mine will be taken out of context. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, for some reason I said the word masochist and I'm sure there's some psychologist is going to work that out. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, but it, it you've got to be careful in this, yeah. in this particular world that we live in right now because it's sure. so easy to be trying to work it out and then be beaten up with your attempts to reach out and then that noise yeah eliminates all but what seems to be happening with our community our direct community that you and i are part of is that you know somebody's went look there's a problem and here it is i mean here's what i think about it but you know what i still love you guys yeah. and i'm still want to be part of it and you go yeah actually you know what yeah she's right and we're we're right to be part of it and by doing that, we then begin to witness what's been around us the whole time. Yep. And so we'll get through it, and the next generation hopefully won't, won't have to deal with it so much. And I think two generations down the line, women who are a minority in magic as magicians will probably always be a minority just simply because of the way kids gravitate to magic, maybe. But they will be a much bigger part of it. And I remember when we did our magic and I wanted to ask Tina Leonard, Mm-hmm. about women in magic and she said I really don't think it's a thing I I see myself as a magician and I see myself with all these issues and some women want to make a big issue out of it in, and it's not helpful and I think the way that it was made an issue through Lauren's uh, uh, misogyny article not masochism people will forget about it if you stop bringing it up I can't believe it. I can't believe you let me do it for like five minutes before you brought it up. You're just like, I'm gonna let this go. I want to see how far this goes. Well, because I do, I do know that magic is very masochistic. So it is. Maybe. By the way, it is. It really is. Yeah. If you're gonna, you know, it really is a masochistic thing. If you've ever worked with illusions. Yeah. And I've I've had to work with illusions um, in my uh, TV work and yeah. There's, there's a definite aspect of that yeah. in, in that world. But, you know, but I think there's an interesting thing happening. And I, it, it's on this interesting knife edge where somebody could carry it one way or the other. Yeah. Where we're all still riding on the edge and it's still moving towards the, the positive stuff. And I think that's a good way to go. And it's a good way to go in everything. And it's a good example of how things can change gradually. Because gradual change is what it takes. You can't change it overnight. You can't turn something completely around I mean not that's not a hard and fast rule but we're we're starting to find that it's getting better and getting better is the, is the way to do it you know yeah um, so hopefully you know I don't know how we got into I don't know how we got into any of this you know this entire thing is uh, I, I was gonna call it off to be honest because I really was upset about Jim today yeah and I thought, no, let's just go and talk. And I won't bring Jim up. And of course, that came very soon into I'm it. I'm glad I did. But, you know, Jim Jim was one of those old school guys from a previous generation who embraced everything that he was picking up from the new generation, but while still being a bit of a crotchety old man at the same time. <laughs> he had that in him. But, you know, he was really encouraging. 
And that's the secret, is keep encouraging. Encourage up the way, encourage down the way, and, you know, embrace the stuff, even the stuff that kind of makes you roll your eyes and makes you think, oh, God, yeah, that's terrible. Okay, what's next? You yeah. know, there's this great thing, somebody, you know, and it was on Facebook, right? So this is a great, <laughs> great thing that came to me. It's a simple thing, it's nothing special, which was, you know, we're all different and that's okay. And that's okay. Yeah. And that's it. That's kind of it. That's kind of the lesson that I took into the new year almost, you know, it was we're all different and that's okay. So you have to embrace the differences and you have to accept that, you know, that's okay. Some some differences are not okay, you know. You know, but that's extremes. But uh, if you can if you can do that then creatively and also in terms of spiritually and in life all of these things work and it all comes from what you are and what you do and you know what I am as I'm a magician and what I do is things that give me a feeling of magic right now that's film and photography I like that really you know getting into that again and I think that the creative juices the things that make us want to do these things in addition to the things we have to do like our day jobs or our you know day to day responsibilities which never go away sure but they don't define you right they only what defines you is what you actually want to do and what expresses you and so you know I feel sorry I know people who are nothing more than what they've had to do it's you know get up and go and do a job I, I've known people like that but you know when you see people who have that job it doesn't matter what it is sweeping the streets or working in a bank but they're 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 that other thing mm-hmm. in their real life you know their real life is that and this is just what they do for a living yeah and there's nothing wrong with it I used to be a computer programmer and I went to work every day but I'm a magician and I was a magician then and I always have been a magician and it actually helped me be a better computer programmer as it happened because of the way I thought. So all of that stuff, everything I've said is entirely contradictory with each and every other thing that I've said. But that doesn't matter, you know. It's like, yes, the internet has taken us apart and yet that's that one thing that made me, that you know, we're all different but that's okay. Just putting it in that sentence and mm-hmm. seeing it in that post was like, that's it. You know, that really connected with me at that time. And, you know, dealing with things is, is, is a hard thing in life. But you can be inspired by somebody's story and you might come to it through the internet. You might come to it through a conversation in the bar. You might come to it over dinner with a friend. Or So I can say to you, well, you know, the internet's driving us apart and we're all becoming more isolated by social media. That is true. But that's because as a as a as a community we haven't learned to use it properly yet we're still you know on the hoverboard with the selfie stick driving to traffic and abusing you know overusing it we're you know we're drinking we're eating too much candy because so much candy is being put in front of us sure. until we're sick right and eventually you go actually I quite like that and I'll take a little bit now and then because it's good and then we'll eventually learn the place for social media and the time for social media and the way that social media works will become more mature within the community so that it it becomes more positive. And the ne- negative aspects of it, checking your Facebook while driving a car on the freeway, right? Shit like that. Will 
there'll be a, you know maybe one generation down the line they'll think I can't believe people are so stupid as to do something like that that's yeah. ridiculous but at the moment we've, we've kind of been given the car and the keys to the car and we're still driving it around you know like idiots eventually you'll learn how to drive and so I think we're, we're at this interesting stage right now with magic filmmaking reading writing social media creativity being a hipster (laughs) any of that stuff we're at that stuff where we're still trying to make it part of everything and gel so that it's kind of less pointed and deliberate and more sort of just what we do and 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 how we enjoy and create and express and there's a very um i think there's a very good time coming where we'll all be comfortable, not just with ourselves, which I'm not, never been comfortable with myself and sure. being a social leader, you know, but that's a good thing because it makes me want to do more things. But I think we'll just be comfortable with the way things are in our little bubble and in the bubbles around us and there, you won't be threatened by a person because they're better than you at something or that they're younger than you mm. or that they're better looking than you. And I have to deal with that because everybody's better looking than me and everyone's younger than me. <laughs> but there's, there's, there's this point where you know, I realized how threatened I was at one point. Yeah. And then you start to realize, you know, I, I'm here because I listened to this guy and I listened to that person. That person was 70 and that person was 22. And I, I didn't, I wasn't conscious of it. I just somewhere I was listening and I was taking it in and not being threatened by it. And so one of the things that when Jim died, that really was the reflection today about how you know, he was my friend, but he was so much older than me. But he was my really good friend, and we talked like friends do. Yeah. And you know, he was older than my parents. So, you know, that is unusual. Yeah. And it's one of the great things about magic is when you go through the history of magic, all these great magicians had much older friends. I think about that all the time. But here's the way to look at it. And I see it now because I'm, like I said before, I'm in my 40s, right? I see it now. I was always thinking, isn't that amazing? These younger guys had these much older friends. But those older guys had much younger friends. And probably that was very unusual outside of the magic community. I think it's still contemporaries, yeah. But then you look at science, it's the same, you know, scientists have younger friends and they they thrive on that thing. So maybe we're just catching up with other communities. But I think when society is doing that as a rule, where there are no age boundaries, then we'll start getting in there. And of course it's very high in my consciousness right now because, you know, it's easy to be told, you know, you've missed the opportunity or you've missed your boat in anything. You know, as an actor, I could be told, you know, oh, you're too fat, you know, you're too uh, old, or you're, you know, you're too Scottish. I mean, any of those things would would bar you. But you know, I've never let that stop me in in terms of, you know, I've always thought no, actually, and continued. And as as you learn to do no, actually, with everything, then life starts to move on and move forward, and you do stuff, and then you stop and go, actually, you know, when I look back. It was, it, it was not recognizing barriers that got us to where we are today. Sure. So, you know, um, Jim once told me, uh, you know, how good a friend he thought I was, and 
that moment is really clear to me. But what's really clear to me that at no point was age a factor in that moment, or considered, or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason it's a factor today is because it's it's age that has robbed him, or robbed me of him, and, and all of his friends of him, and of his wife, and you know, is he? You know, he served out his time, and he can't be with us anymore because that's done. And that's the hard part. If you're, if you're all your friends are the same age as you, then you'll probably, if you're all very lucky, and I hope you are, you'll all go up to your 80s and then you'll all start dropping off then. But the, the hard part of having cross-generational friendships and relationships with, with people and sharing is that, you know, these guys you start leaving. You haven't gotten sick of them yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these guys start leaving the party. And, um, you know, part of you starts to think, actually... I think I should make sure the party stays going. If I don't try to do it, then who who is? You know, yeah. there's a, there's a feeling I've always had, and I really don't want to um, uh, belabor the point. I don't want to piss anybody off, but you know, Vernon shared with a younger generation, and then that younger generation didn't always share back with the next generation. But they're starting to. Mm -hmm. They are doing it to some extent now, and, but. And I challenged Bruce Servon on that. I said, you know, don't you feel a responsibility to pass this stuff on? And he said outright no. But then later we would talk about it and he would start to loosen up a little bit on that. And no is, is a Bruce's way of just arguing with you directly, right? Because he was a very argumentative guy. Um, and that was good, you know? That was good because it was challenging. But um, I felt, well, wait a minute, you've got all these secrets. You know, and you've collected them and you've taken them away. Well, what's going to happen when the kids are reinventing them and you're complaining? Oh, well, that was Vernon's and it was in this, you know, it's in my notes, look. And of course, when he passed on, those notes were passed to the rest of us through L&L. &L and, you know, we have them now. We, you, we can read them and we can find all that material. But there is still stuff. There are still lessons and examples. Not even the secrets. Forget the secrets. Just the example of having a guy like Vernon tell you that you're doing it wrong and that this is why it's right and you know you end up with a better sense of taste mm -hmm. and a better uh, understanding of you know I remember when I was a kid that Gordon Bruce said to me he said uh, you can do you do you do the slight but you don't understand it and I, I remember kind of feeling like that was a a put down or something yeah but years later I get it it, and it is a big thing. Understanding something is very different to being able to do it or knowing it. Sure. There are two very different things. And understanding only comes with experience and time or talent. Sometimes you'll come across a guy who gets it like that, you know. Uh, Derek Delgado is a really good example of that. You know, there's a guy who, when he was 14, was way in advance of all of us anyway. But you get that that's an unusual thing. For the rest of us, it's more about kind of developing that understanding over time but you know the more of those types of guys that come through you know the more the you know Vernon was that type of guy he when he was young he was understanding stuff way before his time and he became you know the hub for all those guys so I do feel that there's a responsibility to to be honest and open and to be an example a good one or a bad one to anybody who wants to 
to look, you know? And so I'm kind of keen that people who should be doing, and I don't necessarily think I'm one of them, but the people that should be making themselves available should be doing it. And I think one person who's doing that exceptionally well is Tamaris. Yes. Who, as he's getting older, is trying to find ways to communicate and convey and teach and share. And, you know, freed of all the stuff of being, you know, a young and hungry and, you know, ambitious magician. You know, yeah. now he's, he is Juan Tamaris, and, you know, but he's also as enthusiastic today as he ever was. And he's the youngest guy in the room, whenever you will. You know, he's, he goes longer, you know, he's, he's, he, you know, he's the one that goes to bed last, right? You know, yeah. always. And, you know, his passion and knowledge for things is just mind-bending. But, you know, he's been building that passion and that knowledge up. And, you know, you just can't have it when you're 18. You can't have that much knowledge and that much sure, passion sure. And, you, and that much experience and, and performing ability. But you can have parts of it and be that example. And you know, So I'm trying to make myself available in that way, but at the same time, not entirely convinced that I'm the right guy to do it. I just think that there are people who are, I think Danny DeWortes is a great, is another great performer, magician, who's, you know, yes, we're making money when we sell DVDs, but when there's a genuine passion to share and improve the people that want to listen, I think there's a difference in the products. There's a real feeling for it there. You know, there's, there's stuff that was put out, I mean, even 50 years ago, that was just, wasn't trying to let you have all the knowledge, it was trying to hold back a little bit, but then there was stuff, you know, like, um, you know, Kaplan's Art of Magic is a great book because he's really given you great stuff, and there's you can tell he knows his, he knows what he's doing, and it's in every word. Ernie's, you know, I mean that guy really understood what he was trying to teach. Yeah. So, I think um, right now it's it's like I really want to do what I want to do, but at the same time I want to be available and also, you know. Be honest. It, it does piss me off when I give something, and then it ends up on a free download or it ends up stolen. You know, just because it cheapens it. Sure. Not because I want your money. I've given away as much as I've ever earned. You know, if somebody can't afford it, I'd like them to have it. You know, there's that feeling. But there's a real sense of if you if you want to share stuff, you really want to find somebody who appreciates it because when they do, it's rewarding for me. It's rewarding for them. And it's really beneficial for creativity and magic and, and artistry and all the things that come with it. So, and our magic was always about that. It was always about trying to give somebody a little bit of a more complex discussion to be part of by watching it and then hopefully thinking about it later. Then they were getting from the other sources that were readily available. And it's out there now and people can have it if they want it. So, you know... That seems to be the, the, the general gist of everything. It, it's interesting that, you know, I think we're two hours to be talking now. This could go on forever. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I mean, I, 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 honestly, <laughs> I, I honestly can't imagine anyone getting this far in the podcast. That's what everybody always says. But yeah, I can't imagine. I, I, if, I, if I listen back to what I've been saying, because there's a bag over this microphone. That's one of the cleverest things anybody's ever done, is you put a bag over the microphone. So I'm totally unconscious of it. So, you know, usually when you talk on television or radio, you know, there's this focus thing that you do where you 
you know, you, you try and speak in sound bites, so you know you've got, and there's no time limit here. So if you've gotten this far, Elliot will send you a medal. I will send you. <laughs> so, uh, so where's my medal to Elliot? And he'll yeah. draw one. Of his Tweet at me or comment on Instagram. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. And my favorite one is almost every episode is way over two hours. Two and a half, three hours. Really? Yeah. And I listen all the way through. Wow. And it doesn't happen in... in is in, it masochistic? Should we bring that up again? It is. It's masochistic. <laughs> it is masochistic. This, yeah, I well, feel, I, I live alone. I don't have any friends. I sit at home and pretend that there are people around. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's some... Um, I think podcasts are interesting. You know, it, 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 everything about the internet sure. is about giving people ways to express without permission. Right? If you want to make a movie, I want to make movies right now. Yeah. You gotta get people to give you money, and I don't. I can't afford that. I mean, I paid for con men, but I did it very creatively. You know, I mean, there were shows and stuff, just trying to pay for that. But you gotta ask. Somebody's gotta go. Okay, I'll give you the money, mm-hmm. and nobody's really gonna go. All right, I trust you. Now, don't show me a script. Here's the money. Here you go. There you go. So there's that process. But what's great about the internet and podcasts in particular is you can just. Give yourself permission. Give yourself permission. It's relative. Once you got one of these microphones or something, you know, it's relatively inexpensive. And then, and I can say all this because nobody's listening, right? They're, 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 it's uh, we're, we've gone way too next? far. Ricky was funny. <laughs> Paul's boring. We'll put Ricky on. Let's put, yeah. <laughs> um, you know. But I think there's something great about it, and it isn't that indic- indicative thing. So to go back to creative creativity and internet, and the positive thing of the internet is there's this thing where you can. And Al, Al, you know, Cuso's a good example of this. Cuso is doing what he's doing because he doesn't have to have that barrier yeah. between him and the objective, right? He can do it and see if it works. And if it works, it works, and he moves to the next stage. And I think this podcast and all podcasts like it are the same thing. You know, 10 years ago, we needed a radio station to give us a studio. And by now, we would have been kicked out. <laughs> right? But, um,. It's really exciting. And if you want to make a film, the, the, everyone's saying this. And, you know, yes, I know I've only done a couple of films, but t- take my word for it. You can make a film on an iPhone. There's no doubt about it. And forget Tangerine. That was really made by great filmmakers. They really knew what they were doing. I mean, it's not just the fact that they could switch an iPhone on. If you really want to learn to make films, you just take your phone, go out and make films. Cut them for yourself on your laptop. All of that stuff's inexpensive, and there's free versions of everything. And then one day when you've got something good and it goes out there, it'll connect, and boom, you'll have done it. And you didn't have to go through any of the stuff we had to go through. That's what's great about what's happening right now. Embrace that stuff and ignore all the other stuff about, you know, attacking people on Twitter and, you know, saying what's possible and what's not possible. And, you know, if it doesn't make money, it doesn't count. Forget all that. You know, that is really, really exciting. And so, you know, this is this is the other thing. You know, whoever's listening to this is, you know, doing it because they want to. Exactly. There's no other reason to be here. Yeah. Right? And I'm here because, you know, I don't know. It's therapy. It feels like it's therapy. That's what I, oh, that's like, that's what I want. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It feels like it's therapy. I, and, you know, it's kind of nice. I was, um, you know, I don't think I could have mentioned Jim's name 
the beginning of this, I think uh, it was really hard, right? But now we can talk about it because you know. Yeah, so yeah. it is like therapy, and you know, I, I, again, I can't imagine why another thing would want to listen to it. You know, it's really interesting. Hilder is the only person that I have done that went over two hours, hmm. other than you. And he, at about this time, he was like, you know, it's really interesting talking for this long because you start to say things that you didn't know you knew or thought. Yeah. And then you can kind of solidify it. And he kind of likened it to therapy, too. It is, it, it is weird. I, I, you know, part of it's just, you know, it's, it's really odd. I, there's a point I remember where I was comfortable calling myself a magician. And it took a long time. It really took a long time because I felt... Just being into magic wasn't enough. And I still agree with that. I still think you're not a magician until you feel like you're ready to say you're a magician and comfortably without being, you know, uh, ashamed of it or in any way, you know, self-loathing about it, right? And I think we, we had, um, I had a lot of magicians when we were doing the initial Unreal interviews. I said, you know, have you got any advice? Speak into the camera. And I, we've never released that. I should put that out. Yeah, yeah. And Eric Mead said, be a magician. Don't say you're this or that. Just be comfortable saying you're a magician because you, it's a great thing to be a magician, right? And right now I feel the same thing about being a filmmaker. I feel like I'm a filmmaker now. I feel like that's what I want to do and I always wanted to be that. And, you know, I'm not, you know, there's people listening to this who are probably much better and much more experienced in that. But I feel because I like it and I love it and I want to do it. And talking about it just makes me comfortable. I don't feel ashamed to say it anymore. There was a kind of, yeah, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. What was that, sorry? Um, pardon? What, you're what? Now you feel like, yeah, You've kind not? of proved yourself. You, yeah. yeah. And I think if you've never made a film in your life and it's something you really want to do and you feel comfortable saying it, go ahead and say it. And same about magic. If you're, you know, you just picked it up and you did it and your first trick made you, I'm a magician. And if that makes you, if you're totally sure and comfortable about that, you're probably going to be a great magician yeah. somewhere down the line. But there is a thing about it when you talk for this long and you just kind of go, oh yeah, that's what I think about that. You know, there's all this great stuff happening. And whenever I think about all the great stuff happening, it's so disjointed. But it does make me think, I'm not really obsessing over the bad stuff that's happening. And that's really positive, and that's really good. And Jim dying is not a bad thing, you know. He he had his life, and it was a good thing. But it was bad that he was killed by cancer, and that it was lung cancer, and that he smoked, and all these types of things. And that you know, I didn't know he was on his last couple of weeks or months. But it's a good thing that he was here and it was a good thing that I remember him the way that I do and that all of his friends and colleagues and family will remember him more and that I see I see only the positive I have to say I can be a very negative person I can be very critical of myself and that's happening less and less and I think going over this podcast it's been mostly about positive stuff I think so, definitely. In the shadow of my friend dying. Yeah. It's, that interests me. Because we talked about analysis a minute ago, and I'm starting to anal analyze what have I babbled about. <laughs> and it's mostly stuff like that. You know? It's only been positive. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because you are being so fulfilled by being able to call yourself a filmmaker and feeling comfortable doing that. Yeah, and you know, being self-fulfilled is a very important thing, but 
you never feel completely self-fulfilled. You know, you, you never feel like. Uh, well, some do, I guess. You know, I don't think if you're an artist of any kind, if you're doing anything, you can look at anything and be completely happy with it. That's impossible if you're really an artist. Sure. All art is abandoned by the artist. You know, hopefully abandoned at the right point, just before they do too much or they, after they've just done enough. But you want to, you know, you want to go back to it always. And uh, that's not a good thing. You've got to leave it alone when you abandon it. So, but it is fulfilling to have that next thing and to have, to think in life in terms of that. So, yeah, I, th I find it interesting that at the moment, looking back on this podcast, everything seems very positive. But I wonder, I'll never listen to this. God knows I would never want to listen to this again. But if the, if that's true, you know how sometimes you think you were positive and then you, you actually, you know, you were really negative. Maybe that's true. I don't think it is. But if that's true and it's really positive, that's good because that's a good thing ultimately in that, you know, the stuff that makes me want to continue doing whatever it is I'm doing is based on actual positive elements. That's really good. And, and that, that's what you share. Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine, well, Jason, England, you know, I had been moaning and griping about something or other for possibly for days. And he, he said it. He said, you know, you're being really negative. And you're being really critical. And you're being really poor. And I realized that I'd done way too much of that. Not just then, but throughout life. And it's kind of compulsive. You know, when you start getting into gossip. or you, yeah. you know. And there's been two times in my life where somebody has commented on it. And it's had an impact. Once was with Jason. And once was with somebody else before who just took me aside and said, don't do that. And really made me go, oh yeah, you know what? Yeah, I should stop doing that. But you know, we fall back into that. But I think we've had a pretty positive conversation. Yeah, absolutely. That was one question. Second question. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do the lightning round? Well, is, uh, there's a lightning there's round? There's a lightning round. That's just what we do at the end. That was the first question in the lightning round. That's just what we do at the end. Um, and that just it involves me like, reading over what I typed out before. Um, Have I answered anything that you've typed out in all of this? Most of the things that I typed out, you you talked about. Oh, that's good. Which is why I was quiet. That's good. And also, I just would want to listen to you. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the magic landscape. We talked about social media and the magic hierarchy. Right. That's literally the first two things I've written down. Isn't that interesting? Um, so it's a mentalism routine I'm doing. Right? We talked about we talked a lot about film, which is you know mm -hmm. all the kind of stuff I have done. Um, we talked about cardistry and just the younger, mm -hmm. the younger generation. Um, I am interested to know one really embarrassing story about Dan and Dave. For the people, that'll be like a little treat for the people that made it this long. Um, right. Well, my favorite Dan and Dave story okay. uh, is when I first got to know them. There were two young guys at the convention. I think this was the. First year they were around. It must have been the second year they were around. And it was the A1 Magic Convention <laughs> in Sacramento. Do you know the story? No. You know what's coming? Maybe. So they, um, you know, they were really quiet guys. Uh, and they were doing really interesting stuff. I, I found it interesting. Anyway. So, you know, I liked them. And I 
you know, they would they would hang around us. And one day, uh, Dave handed me a deck of cards. I took it from him, and it gave me an electric shock. So it was a deck. Of, it was a box that he had he had bought of Jerry. Oh, and he, he there was a little metal plate underneath, and there was a battery inside. And when you took it, it gave you an electric shock. And I went, okay. And so, uh, a couple of days later, uh, the, one of the big shows was on in the big room, and a guy came out who I knew, older guy, and he was walking across the uh, main lobby area of the hotel, and we were sitting on these chairs, and I said to Dave, do me a favor, could you uh, go and do that thing to my friend over there, you know, so he went over, and uh, so we're sitting at the back of the hotel lobby, it was a big lobby, and we're watching... Alone in the middle of the floor is Dave, young Dave, talking to this guy. And the guy's name uh, is most famously known as Arnold Snyder, the Bishop of Blackjack, right? And a very famous uh, publisher of the Blackjack Forum, old school Blackjack card counting guy. I mean, the real guy, this is like a big, but he happened to be a magic fan. He happened to be in the Magic Commission. And he is a friend, and they're chatting. And uh, Arnold, who has another name, which I, I mustn't say, so I won't say his other name. Sure. It's real name. Um, Arnold is chatting to him, and Dave hands him a deck of cards, and Arnold takes a deck of cards and stops. Falls to his knees and collapses. And this guy's in his 50s, I think. And oh, no. <laughs> Poor is, Dave. is in convulsions. And Dave is standing there, rooted, frozen. I run over. So this is all set up. Sure. <laughs> and the plan is for me to run over and say, are you, and to get down and check if he's okay, and, and to turn to Dave and say, what have you done? That's the line. That's the line. And I'm halfway across the floor when that big show with all the magicians in it lets out. And now a thousand people pour into the lobby, including... A paramedic who's there just happens to be at the thing. And they all pour on and they surround him and I'm there and this big scene has started. <laughs> Worst of all, uh, Arnold is keeping it up. Keeping the gag on. He's still going. <laughs> and this guy's like, call, cause I remember him shouting, uh, call 911, this guy shouts. Yeah, yeah. And starts dealing with Arnold who's having apparently a heart attack on the floor. But I immediately shout, don't call 911. <laughs> and I'm kicking this my friend on the floor. And this guy's like, what are you doing? I'm kicking. I said, That's enough. And so finally he smiles and the whole audience gets it. And then there's like dozens and dozens of people around him. And, you know, and everyone's laughing. And he gets up and we look around and Dave is gone. <laughs> He's gone. Completely not there. And he was not there when he got up. He bolted. He bolted at some he point. He killed and someone. we saw him. He was in a corridor of the hotel standing beside a a trash can wiping the fingerprints off of this thing which he was about to throw in the bed and he had to, so my favorite that was that was really that was really good but my favorite part was they had um, comment cards at the end of the convention and so what did you think it's wiping his fingerprints wiping the fingerprints off and uh, my favorite part was the comment cards of the convention, which um, Dave had put, uh, I really enjoyed the convention, but Paul Wilson played a me really mean <laughs> trick on me. <laughs> so that was my, uh, that was my favorite, I oh, think. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, 
And there's 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 others, but you know, nothing I wouldn't get sued for. Okay. So. And then the the last the last lightning round question is, when was the most recent time you were like punched in the gut, fooled? Can you remember? <laughs> um. Well, I, I can remember when I was last punched in the gut. Uh, that sounds like a good story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> those aren't good stories. The um, punched in the gut. I mean, just really blew your mind full. Not well, like, oh, that's interesting. I don't know. Juan fools me all the time. Sure. Uh, and if, you know, there, there's a point where you know what Juan's doing. So, you know, it's like when you're married to a magician. The first time, if you met yeah. a magician, male or female, right? And, you know, wow, this person's amazing. Then you get to know their timing and, like, they can't fool you anymore. Right? Yeah. So there's an element of that with Juan, right? Where you can, but then I know, I've, I've been watching the routines for years. He's described them to me. And you kind of see his him using the toolbox in front of an audience, but when it's directed at you, he's you know he's gonna get you. He once said to me, uh, um, "Oh, we're gonna do some magic. It's a fizzle. We're gonna do some magic around the table. Usual thing. I just step back sometimes and let people enjoy it, right?" And he said, "Oh no, come and sit, sit there." I'm like, "Okay, something's coming." So he starts doing total coincidence, which is. A routine I do of his is the two decks. Mm-hmm. No one can do it like Juan, right? Nobody, but it's a great trick. And he starts doing that routine. Um, and it fools everybody like it normally does, but it particularly fools me because I do it and there are two shuffles in there that shouldn't be there. And I still don't know how the hell he did it. And it's just, you know, went by everybody else, but I'm just sitting there, how the hell is this happening now? So, you know, that was kind of good. The, one of my favorite fooled moments was Dean Dell. And he fooled me many times. And again, just like anybody, you know, once he was got his sights on you, he's going to get you. So Dean fooled me absolutely with a ring on string effect where he set up a book and the book was always Williamson's Wonders, right? <laughs> and he would set this up as a, as a barrier. So he would have rubber bands around it so he could open the book up as a, as a, as a sort of divider. Mm-hmm. And he would stand it up on the table and he had this piece of string, just coarse string that you get in a hardware store. He cut a big long length. He short, you know, he do gags with it, shorten the ends and all that usual stuff. It was a big long length of string, and he put the ends over the edge of the book so you could see the ends at all time. And he'd tell people on either side, keep your eyes on those ends, make sure they don't leave your sight ever, right? So this isn't Dean's box or mm-hmm. one of those things where the ends vanish for a second. You know, they stay there, and you look over the book. So you guess everyone to stand up and look over the book. So you can see that string. There's only one piece of string. There's no extras. And then you drop your finger ring over the end of the, the book, right? And then you watch him. He's behind the book. He does something. And then he starts moving those ends closer to you so that they become longer. And they never leave your sight. And that's a condition of the trick. They never leave your sight. And then he brings it up and those, and the ring is on the middle of the string. And then he gives you the string and everything to examine. First time he did that, I was just completely blown away and... I happened to be staying quite nearby in Glendale and I went back to my apartment at the end of the day and uh, the next day I went in and I had a thought maybe maybe it was something like this and he was doing the trick as I walked in and you could see his his eyes flickered up that kind of because you know that if I'd come in and said do it again he would not have done it again yeah yeah so now I'm in and I was right which was you know but I was really really fooled really fooled and um, that was a kind of a gut punch moment. And, you know, I, 
Recently, not a lot. I mean, I don't really see much that really... It's hard to be fooled, and that's a bad thing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you're always hoping that somebody will come up and show you something and not tell you immediately how it's done. Maybe I'll tell you eventually. But there is a thing, you know, 40 always fools me when I see it, but then he's, he just shows you right away. And then it's this. Oh, God, okay, that's six months of my life. I'm going to have to, you know, give up to do that. But there's there's stuff like that. Gut punch fooled is not really... Doesn't happen much. No, it doesn't happen much. I think that I love it to happen more, but what I really look forward to is to see magic done so well yeah. and with such respect for itself, which sure. is the thing that we have to bring to it. If you don't respect it, why do you want them to respect it? You know, really... I still think, you know, Helder and Derek's show, um, nothing to hide. And and Ricky's show, and, you know, but nothing to hide was just so good. On every level, every single piece those guys did was so well written, it was so conceived. And it was done with such, you know, uh, you know, they didn't give a shit. They just did it, you know, in a way that, you know, I... I saw it twice and was just thrilled by seeing magic done that well and with such respect and with such uh, personality, you know, and it was like nobody else could do it like that. I mean, people could rip off those tricks if they wanted to and they shouldn't, but you couldn't, and you know, and by the way, individually, now that they're work, doing, working on their own shows, they're, they're a different animal to what they were together. They created something together that was unique and now you've, you know, we go back to those individual elements, but those individual elements are so good, mm-hmm. right? So I get a thrill out of that as much as I get out of being gut punch fooled. And there was a f- couple of things in that show that got pretty close to fooling me. You know, I used to spend time with uh, Dominic de Vivier, and he would fool the crap out of you with really weird esoteric stuff. I remember he did a trick with a box, and you, you mailed cards into the box, and at the end of it, I can't even tell you what the effect is now, but the day after, it's all I could think of, you know, and. He had an amazing triumph where you shuffled everything face up and face down, like really, like you're the spectator. And then you put the deck in a, in a in a black bag, and there's no switch, and you go in and come on, and the deck goes. I still don't know how that's done, you know, and I still don't know how that's done. There's tricks like that, and Matthew B should always fool you, and you know, Danny Doherty's and all, you know, I love it, but it's fleeting. I'm too well read and too sure. long in the tooth. To not have something to hold on to a lot of the time. Yeah. But I don't... Maybe 10 years ago, if I was fooled, I would feel threatened. That somehow there's it would it would reveal something negative in me for not knowing that or whatever. And now I'm just like, great, great. Well, what is it? And, you know, it's this thing that you've always known. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Whereas maybe before I would... Oh, yeah, I thought that's what it was. Because I'm human. Right. Yeah. So I, I do love it, but um, I've always said, you know, magic's great, and I will pay $1,000 for an amazing effect if it's a piece of string and a paper clip, and that's all there is to it, but if it's wonderful, more than an electron, I hate electronic magic, generally speaking, you know, so I'm really a gut punch fool, no, no, not, not very much, and I, I do look for it, I do look for it. There was a great trick, I'll tell you a great trick, um, that fooled a lot of people. It didn't catch me out because I thought, I knew the, I knew, I knew a detail. And it was, um, a guy at Blackpool had a voodoo doll, right, so it was a voodoo doll, 
in a, a needle. And he turned his back and you put the needle into the needle and then you remove the needle and then you hit the doll and you turn around and tell you what it was. And everybody thought it was electronics. And um, then he, you know, so, so somebody bought it and was doing it in the cafe and everyone's like, well, how much did you pay for that? It must be 500 pounds or mm-hmm. like all the electronic stuff is. And the guy who really does it well is, is, is Craig Felicetti because he really seems to understand how to employ it in the way that makes it so that electronics is not an, is not an obvious option or even a considered option. Mm-hmm. A lot of people make electronic stuff that just is essentially doing magic the way that lay people always thought we were doing it anyway. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, you've got a printer in your pocket and it prints the prediction for you. Well, that's what they're doing there. Yeah. Right? But they thought they would... You, know, you get the idea. So the guy said, I got this and he did it. And so, so how much was that? You must have spent a lot of money. It's £10. How the hell is it done? It was fooling everybody really badly. And the method, and I'm going to tip the method because you still have to buy it to get the, the thing. And for £10, you might as well find the guy and buy it. And I don't remember his name, but I'm sure if you look, you might find a version. And the method is great. It's a hypodermic needle. And it's got, so it's, t- it's hollow at the end. And I, think it, I don't even think it's fully hollow. But anyway, the doll is full of different colored um, plasticine mm-hmm. so when you put the needle into it and then you put the needle back on the little thing on the table when I turn around the point is towards me and I can see the color oh genius <laughs> so that's how it's done what a genius idea yeah this is a magician's podcast right so I mean, I'm sure I haven't just thought maybe lay people listening to this it was a genius idea and you know it's a great example of how um a very simple, clever idea. It's almost childlike. Mm-hmm. Can be built into something, and you know, in the hands of the right person, will be amazing. You know, uh, there is a, you know, the electronics, and you know, you go to these conventions, and they're, they're so successful because you know people can do it. They think they can just do it because they bought the product. I remember I was at um, some, I think, FISM last year or something. And, you know, these guys were selling the pads where you write on a notepad and it appears in your iPhone. Okay? Wow. <laughs> so, somebody's listening to this story going, well, Paul's giving us away on a podcast. Well, you know what? I saw that exact product today in the Apple store. Bamboo are selling it. Yep. And you do notepads and then your iPhone's got the note exactly. And it looks like, and it looks better than anything we were making for Magic. There are ways of doing this in magic where someone can take a piece of paper without any surface, write what they need on it, and there is no electronics, there is no peaking, there's no, you know, the thing can even be destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. And the mind reader can divine what that was. Isn't that better than a guy with an iPhone? Yeah, definitely. Right? So let's end with that. And I think that, um, you know, Magic, and it is actually, it's kind of come full circle because magic methods will come full circle too. Just like film, going back to celluloid, just like, um, you know, the way that we interact with technology, kind of going back to, you know, what we kind of always did, except it becomes part of it rather than the middle of it. We, in terms of magic methods, the original methods or the methods that were around 100 years ago are as important and as valuable today as they ever were. And in the hands of new generations who employ them differently and better and sleeker and faster, 
That's where the, the innovation will come. So the new stuff comes in, everyone gets excited and they all buy it. But then it becomes redundant as it becomes well known, right? Mm-hmm. Because it becomes part of everyday society. Magicians have always been trying to be one step ahead of technology. But now technology doesn't, there's no delay between someone figuring something out and everybody knowing about it and using it. So now magicians have to be cleverer. And the lack of technology and the obvious clear lack of technology is important. You know, and it relates to, in a way, in a kind of twisted way, to the Turk, going back to our magic. Mm-hmm. You know, this machine is playing chess. Must be a guy doing it. Nope, here's all of the parts. And by doing that, by making technology the solution, mm-hmm. these moving cogs and wheels, and there's clearly nowhere a man could be hiding in there when you see this. The audience is then left with nothing but a magical idea of a machine that can think mm-hmm. right and so we have to dismiss so again it's kind of flipping it on its head but we have to dismiss technology to make some magic seem feasible so when you do a trick with your iphone and somebody says that's great can i get that from the app store that's not good for magic it's not good yeah. for you and it's not good for anything but when you take an iphone and you do something like, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's things where, you know, you show something on your iPhone and then you make it real by using a little bit of sleight of hand or, you know, that's not the same thing. That mm-hmm. still feels like real magic. And there, and there's a couple of, you know, Greg Rostami's an interesting guy. He makes really interesting, engaging iPhone apps that use technology. But even so, you're like, well, but, uh, you know, you're still in that sure, magical sure. field. So magic is, is one of those things that always tries to, be use technology in a very clever way and sometimes it doesn't use it in a clever way and I think that's kind of what's happening with that stuff I'm talking about but then when you see what Felicetti does and you realize the tools he creates are so powerful um, there's a real magician behind that Greg there's a real guy who understands it whereas some things are just people saying I can sell this right I can sell this if I take it to the thing what's the point of that but you put someone who thinks about it and then the technology is irrelevant, actually, you know? And the same guy can do the same thing in many different ways. So, you know, everything kind of comes full circle. And I think that now we're doing this thing where we're kind of, we've had the the thrill of the new. Mm-hmm. And now that we've kind of realized, well, actually, now that's wearing off, that other stuff is actually still really valuable and maybe more valuable. And maybe by blending the two, you'll end up with a new, better, more productive thing. Just like when the generations of magic and of creativity in all fields actually communicate together and relate to one another and share, you end up with a very positive, very um, rewarding um, community. And uh, I think that the death of Jim Patton and uh, um, the way I kind of see things happening in my little bubble has all kind of cemented that with me. And, uh, you know, I'm really sorry for anybody who's had to listen to it for the last two hours. <laughs> so anyway, I, I hope there's something in there for, for somebody. I, look, at the end of the day, I just love all of this. And I, I have to remind myself sometimes that I love all of this because the bullshit's out there. You know, the, yeah. the, 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 the negative stuff is out there. And, um, you know, I think just, just, 
step away from it and enjoy the stuff that you really like. Shine a light on it, as Lauren did with that issue. And rather than... Because, you know, the, the reason I brought that up earlier that I didn't say, the thing about that that was a really important lesson for me, because I went through some bad stuff with magicians at one point. And I just wanted to leave. I wanted to quit. I wanted to screw these guys, you know. And somebody just came to me and said, you enjoy it, you shouldn't do it. Someone really important. And uh, so I basically stepped away from that part of it and enjoyed the other part of it, and here we are today, right? Whereas what she did, she said, okay, I've got a problem with this, and I'm going to deal with it in a really productive way, in a productive way. Mm -hmm. Didn't run away, didn't, you know, basically throw her toys out of the pram and essentially deprive herself of enjoying what she enjoys. We've all got to do that more and concentrate on the positives and make things better. And it's easy to say, you know, I... I complain because this is like this and those people like that and they don't understand they don't read enough books and they don't it's easy to complain and it's compulsive right it's easy so you do more of it but when you concentrate on the positive stuff and you recognize and learn from the people that have made things better then everything is more enjoyable and I think and more fun and I think that's kind of what I was trying to learn today through the things that happened on the night. You know, as I said earlier, you know, I started my, my day's been amazing. I'll tell you what, my day's been amazing. Let me leave you with this. I okay. said leave you before, my day's been amazing. I, I discovered magic at eight years old by watching Doug Henning. And on that Doug Henning show was Ricky Jay. And you know, here we are today and I love cards and I love Ricky Jay and I don't know him at all I don't but I had breakfast this morning with the guy who helped Doug Henning and designed illusions for him is a really uh, you know wonderful magical honest genius of a guy who I've always looked up to and we had breakfast like friends and I was just you know I, I got a thrill out of that and then after breakfast with him I had lunch with Mike Ellis Aldi who's one of the great magicians of movies and is a really clever magician as a magician but he's a you know I discovered him through Dan and Dave we went to his place together and I was sitting there going you know you decide all the stuff you know I told him when we were talking about practical effects in movies what well, my favorite effect was was a combination effect of CGI and practical effects that was stunning. And he said, yeah, I did that. <laughs> and that was a great moment, and, you know. But I had lunch with Mike and, uh, you know, ostensibly to talk about something I, I needed his advice on, but we never got to it because like this damn podcast, right? <laughs> we just talked yeah, yeah. about the stuff that interested us. And um, I came away from that going, I can't believe I get to speak to that guy. I get that thrill. And then after that, I had coffee with Max Maven for two and a half hours. And I remember my first magic convention, he did a lecture. I never heard of him. Uh, this is obviously quite young, but I never heard of Max Maven. I went to this lecture and it was great. And I bought his notes and I saw him sitting alone in the cafe area. I just wanted so badly to go up to talk to him. But I didn't have the guts. I was too... And today, you know, he's a friend and a really good friend. And I got to have and then I got to come to Dave and Coley's home because I love these people and, yeah. uh, and I got to talk to you and this has been a great day and after this I'm going to meet my friend Gianni who I met at the Magic Castle who is a, a movie actor and a producer who's been helping me and we've, uh, we're going to talk about a script that we've, we've just done 
and all of this, and this podcast, which you've had to suffer through for how many hours, this podcast, this therapy session, all of this is because one day I thought I love magic and I want to do, I want to learn it. Yeah. And I think that whatever you think of whatever I said or how ridiculously babbling or masochistic this this has been. All of this happened because I decided to like magic, even though it was a weird thing to do and it was a strange community to get involved with. But it's led me to where I am now. And all my friends and the people that I like and love who have come to me from this, and my wife who I I met and, you know, the other people I've met, the kids that I have and the dog that I've got, all because of magic. And I think anybody who's fortunate in life who can look back, it's the same thing. It's all come because of music or literature or working in a factory or you know just something that, that, that bonded everybody and it's a form of magic, all of it. So all of it comes from this. And so you all probably start listening to me Babylon because you like magic or you like whatever. And if you've gotten this far, it's there's nothing to apologize for in what you like and love in life. And there's going to be a point where you look back and go, wow, because I walked into that magic shop or I bought that download or I learned how to do a cardistry move or I just liked this thing. It'll really suddenly be an important hinge in everything else that's happening in your life. And so I just kind of recognize that. And I think, um, again, I'm, saying, I'm just repeating myself, but today's especially, all these wonderful things I've done today, and uh, at the same time I learned something awful, yeah. is uh, kind of weird and, and kind of difficult to deal with. So we'll stop talking now. Um, my, I get a little tap on my wrist. So the iPhone, the iPhone, the iWatch is designed to tell you to stand every um, fifty minutes or something like that. Yeah, and it's gone off several times. <laughs> so now it's just saying, for God's sake, shut up. <laughs> so for God's sake, I will shut up. Thank you so much. This has been the best. Yeah, we're gonna have to re-record this. Okay, I can tell. This is just, it's just nonsense. I'll cut it down to a tight twenty. Yeah, if you can cut out any word mention of masochist, <laughs> now that I've given you fifty of them to remove. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was weird, wasn't it? That's okay. <laughs> so yeah, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm glad we did this, and I hope it does well. And um, is there anything you want to plug before we end? Nah, I don't really want to plug anything. I think um, you know, this feels very conversational, and it does feel like uh, there would be something vulgar about doing that. I don't know why. You know. Okay. Um, Although I know someone's listening is going, oh, Jesus, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> but, you know, that person doesn't interest me. But if you're sitting there going, oh, this is kind of interesting, then you're probably our type of people. Yeah. And um, that's good. And there's more and more of us, which is also good. So, um, yeah, I think this has been fun. Well, thank you so much again. Yeah. Is that, has this been on? Are you sure? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>